Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Certain as the sun rising in the east. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme, beauty and the beast. It's business time, baby. The Solomonster sounds off. My client, Brock Lesnar, conquered a streak. This doesn't make any sense. Your title belt is made of leather. You're not a real vegan. He's fat. You haven't been beat up properly. Woo! You know you have a good intro when you crack yourself up putting it together. I think those are some of the best ones anyway. The ones that are completely random that have nothing to do with anything. This is episode 396 of the Solomonster Sounds Off, here for Sunday, August 16, 2015. I am the Solomonster. Got to have a quick mention for our Audible trial here at the beginning of the podcast, which you guys have been taking full advantage of, audibletrial.com slash Solomonster. Uh, you guys have really knocked it out of the park the last two months, uh, really have supported the show, and also gotten yourself a free book. The Daniel Bryan Yes Book is available with partial narration by Brian himself on Audible right now. If you sign up for a 30-day trial using our URL, audibletrial.com slash Solomonster, you will get to cash in one free audio book. It could be the new Daniel Bryan book. It could be the Shawn Michaels book that came out several months ago. It could be one of Chris Jericho's books that are available on there. The Hulk Hogan book, uh, Dusty Rhodes. There's a whole... Uh, group of wrestling books that are available, but the Brian one has been getting a lot of praise. So get yourself a free copy right now, audibletrial.com slash Solomonster, and you can uh, cash in for your free Daniel Bryan book. Even if you cancel during the trial period, you won't get billed and get to keep the book. So please take full advantage of that while you are still able to do so. We also have a brand new shirt up in our Pro Wrestling Tea store, ProWrestlingTees.com slash Solomonster Sounds Off. Uh, the new Whistling Dixie shirt. Nice little uh, illustration that uh, one of our listeners, the very talented Justin, put together of uh, Dixie whistling through the graveyard. You can check it out right now on our store. It's available up to size 5XL ships all over the world. Just another way to support the podcast so head on over to Pro Wrestling Tees and pick yourself up a shirt. And you could also make a PayPal donation if you'd like to on the Solomonster.com. $10 or more will get you a wrestling nickname. $30 or more will get you a nickname plus a shout-out for your own podcast or YouTube channel. Thank you very much to Chuck Lunatic Lentz, the Marietta Mauler, Alexandru Mata, Malicious Intent, Michael Cuomo, Bobby the Wizard Waldrop, Deadpool James Herrera, Rapmaster Roger Lopez, Stephen Will You Stop Willis, 
Joey Sick of It All Sanzari, Anthony Gorilla Press Gonzalez, Danger Boy Darrell Adams, and Bear Claw Wendell Baugh. Thank you very much, everybody who made a donation this week. Uh, I am very much appreciative of that. Again, thesolomonster.com, always the place to go ahead. And uh, any time of day, any amount that you want to donate, the PayPal box is right there on the right-hand side. This is a big week coming up. It is, uh, I guess you can call it the Brooklyn Invasion, the Brooklyn Wrestling Invasion. We've got SummerSlam night at MCU Park in Coney Island with the Brooklyn Cyclones play. That's coming up on Wednesday. they got Ryback, Fandango, Eva Marie, and Charlotte are going to be in attendance. Uh, the same uh, venue, mind you, that Ring of Honor is running a few days later. They will be there playing in a celebrity softball game before the Cyclones game that night. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see. Thursday night is an indie show here in my neck of the woods with uh, the Young Bucks. It's uh, Five Borough Wrestling. I'm hoping to be there for that. Saturday is NXT TakeOver, the first of three nights for WWE at the Barclays Center. Sold out at the Barclays Center. I've got my ticket. I am looking forward to that one and hopefully seeing some of you there as well. Uh, that same night, Ring of Honor is running MCU Park only a few miles away for their Field of Honor show. They've got a bunch of New Japan guys on there. I know Nakamura, Okada, Kushida. Uh, There's a really uh, pretty stacked lineup of matches, too, if you look at the card. So if you're not going to the NXT show, I would imagine a lot of those people are going to be ending up at ROH. Next Sunday, of course, is four hours of SummerSlam. I will not be there unless my buddy finds some decent seats the day of on StubHub, which is still a possibility. Uh, otherwise, I have no problem watching it on the network. And they will be back in Barclays for the third straight night next Monday for Raw. Uh, the Brooklyn Brawler just has to appear on one of these shows. Just has to. It, it just wouldn't be... It would be almost unconscionable to think that they would run three straight nights in Brooklyn and not have the Brooklyn Brawler somewhere on one of these shows. I'm, I'm thinking more likely it would be Raw on Monday, although... You know, I know Apollo Crews needs an opponent for his debut at TakeOver, but I'm I'm not sure the Brawler is the best opponent for him. See, I, I think Apollo Crews, he needs somebody who can who can bump for him. He needs somebody he can probably uh, throw around. I don't know how well uh, the Brawler can do that at this stage. So follow me on Twitter, at Solomonster, for all this stuff. I'll be, you know, tweeting up a storm this week. I'll post pictures wherever I am and, and all that good stuff. And next weekend on the podcast, we will do SummerSlam predictions before the big show. Now, I debated whether or not I should even mention this. Uh, it was either this or the Roman Reigns getting hit in the head with a briefcase story, as this week's non-story that got blown up into a story. Uh, more of you seem interested in my thoughts on this, so I'll be brief. Roddy Piper's funeral took place in Portland this past week, and should have been about Roddy Piper. But unfortunately, it ended up being about Triple H in China. And you could put the blame on Sean Waltman, I guess, since he's the one who went on Twitter and brought it up. I doubt anybody would have found out about any of this had he not said anything. But he did. And according to Waltman, who was not there, by the way, he was not in attendance, but according to Waltman, China was in attendance. She did not crash the funeral as he originally thought. He did correct himself later. And apologized. He said that she was invited to be there, which she was. And while there, she, and this is his word, she bum-rushed Triple H, I guess after the service was over, to apologize to him for everything. 
Now, I know that China and Waltman have had their public spats. He's not exactly a completely unbiased, independent source of information on this. But I don't see him just making stuff up out of thin air here. You know, plus, the guy is best friends with Triple H. So if he got this information from anywhere, I mean, come on, put two and two together. Where, where do you think he got this from? When, when all that stuff went down on the Opie show... He came out of that. I thought Waltman did sounding a hell of a lot more credible than she did. She sounded like a complete train wreck. Uh, you know, he even offered to take a lie detector test, which she didn't want to do. She just wanted to move on. And think about how ridiculous that is. You go on a radio show and you accuse someone of raping you, which is what she did with Waltman. She accused him of rape. And then you get called out on it and... The other person offers to come down and take a lie detector test. You turn around and you say, oh, it's in the past. I, I, I just want to move on. <laughs> no, you don't get to do that. You do not get to do that. So, you know, China, now for her part, she responded to all this. She posted a YouTube video on her channel. It's like two minutes long. And she said she didn't bum rush Triple H. She said, and I quote, She calmly wrapped her arms around him and whispered in his ear how deeply sorry she was for anything that she said under emotional distress after everything that she's been through. This is the same man that she accused of physically assaulting her. Now she wants to say sorry and blame it on her state of mind. She, she makes herself out to be the victim, and now she wants to say sorry. She also happens to be filming a documentary. So I'm sure this will make for some great drama on that movie whenever it comes out. Just like she popped up in the lobby of Titan Tower to take a picture, and she posted it online to make everybody think she was there for some kind of meeting with WWE. Ooh, China. China's meeting with WWE. There was no meeting. Anybody could walk into a lobby. I could put on a kangaroo costume and walk into the lobby of WWE headquarters and take a picture. It'll, it'll be at least 90 seconds before they throw me out on the street. This woman is a train wreck. She needs to stay out of the spotlight. Just lay low, live her life, and not worry about making up with Triple H and WWE and getting closure with Triple H and WWE. The way I look at it, when you start lobbing accusations that probably have no merit, you're lobbing these accusations of people, they raped me, they assaulted me, you lose your right to closure at that point. I don't blame them at all for not wanting to have anything to do with this woman. And I defended her. I defended her when Triple H gave the whole Google excuse on Austin's podcast for why they can't put her in the Hall of Fame, which I thought was nonsense when you have Tammy Sitch in there doing that wrestling vixen stuff. And, and yes, I know that wasn't hardcore porn, but you know where do you draw the line on who goes in and who doesn't? I think I even said on that, on that podcast, I said, is it penetration? I guess penetration is the dividing line. So I defended her. I defended her place in the Attitude Era and the contributions that she made to the company and the money that she made them and everything. You know, we hadn't heard from her in years. She was over in Japan. I think she was teaching, whatever the hell she was doing over there. Until Austin asked that question on the podcast, and then ever since then, she's been nothing but a total embarrassment. I wouldn't return her calls either. I mean, let's be real here. I mean, this woman's story probably ain't going to have a happy ending. And if I'm WWE... I want to stay as far away from that as possible. You don't get to make accusations like that and then turn around and play kiss and make up. That's not how it works. 
WrestlingDVDNetwork.com broke the story on Thursday that WWE's Owen Hart, Heart of Gold DVD, will be released in the UK first on December 7th, and then here in the US the next day on the 8th. You can pre-order it right now if you want to on Amazon.com. And according to their report, it's coming with a documentary that's going to run anywhere from 90 minutes to 2 hours in length. I am very interested to see how they handle this. Primarily the stuff about his death, obviously, but just the whole thing. Uh, just the fact that we're getting an Owen Hart project. Uh, not It's not quite 20 years yet. Uh, it's more like 15, but it's a long time after he, he passed away. And so this is uh, going to be very uh, interesting, I think, just how they put this whole thing together, what they have to say, uh, who they interview for it, who they don't. Uh, I'm also very curious what matches they put on there. You know, Owen and Brett had, uh, they, they may have had a few of these, I'm not sure, but I know they had at least one 60-minute match back in 94 when they were feuding. Uh, there's fan cam footage of it online. But if they taped it, if they actually taped it with their own cameras, I'd love to see them throw one of those on there. Uh, this is the match where Owen briefly won the WWF Championship from Brett. It was a lumberjack match, and then they ended up overturning the decision. Brett then won the match. That's where that famous image comes from. If you if you look online, you'll find pictures of Owen Hart posing with the WWF title. Uh, that's the match that it's from. Uh, I'd love to see that on there. Brett and Owen had a match once against the Steiner brothers. It was during a Raw taping. I think it only aired on a Coliseum video release. I vaguely remember it uh, being great. I did see it once. It was a long time ago. Uh I wonder, I mean, I guess it could be, there There may have been a Hart DVD that already came out. I don't know if the match is on there, but it, it should be on this one, too. Uh, there's a bunch of rare matches I'd like to see on there, and those are some of them. And then you have the match with Davey Boy on Raw. They had that final match in the European title tournament. I think it was taped in Germany. That was a great match. The cage match with Brett at SummerSlam 94, which is my all-time favorite cage match in WWE. Uh, they should probably put that Canadian Stampede 10-man tag on there, too, considering that Owen got the pin on Steve Austin to win the match, which is kind of a big deal. I mean, there are a lot of great Owen Hart matches to choose from. You got the dungeon match. I mean, how could I forget about that? The dungeon match is a pay-per-view match that Owen had with Ken Shamrock. It was inside the old Hart family dungeon. Uh, I think Dan Severn was there as the special referee. I mean, at times it was comical, but it was just, it was such a unique match. We had never seen anything like that before. They went out of their comfort zone, and they gave us that that match. And I, it's one of those things they don't do enough, I think, these days. They don't go out of their comfort zone. Everything is so, I, I don't know, just sanitized. Is that the right word for it? Or formulaic? It was a unique thing, and I, I feel like they don't do enough of that now. Uh, and that was the only time they ever did a dungeon match uh, in the actual dungeon. I mean, Shamrock had some of those Lions Den matches, which also were kind of unique. Uh, he had at least two of them. Actually, I think he had three. I think he had one with Owen uh, after the dungeon match. He had one with Steve Blackman, and I think he actually had one on Raw once with Vince McMahon, which which wasn't much of a match. Uh, but anyway, just spitballing here. Those are some matches I'd like to see on, on an Owen Hart DVD. And it's only a few more months. We don't have very long to wait, I guess, before we see what's on there. One last thing here before we get to Raw... Uh, there was a line in this week's Wrestling Observer Newsletter that, almost like a throwaway line, that caught my eye. It said former WWF champion, uh, WWE champion, Pedro Morales, who is 72 years old now, is suffering from Parkinson's disease. 
Uh, I don't know why that was in there now, because I remember hearing uh, that he had Parkinson's at least a year ago, maybe longer. Uh, maybe it's only getting worse now. That's why he mentioned it. I, I don't know. But I had just gotten a tweet last week before the, the newsletter even came out from somebody asking me, hey, why does WWE never mention Pedro Morales? And then I got an email two days ago from a completely different listener asking the same question. It was kind of eerie. Uh, shout out to Mario, by the way, for the email. So I saw that in the newsletter, and I'm getting these these tweets and these emails, and I said, you know With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What now would be a good time, I think, to say a few words about Pedro Morales because it's true. You, you hardly ever hear WWE mention the guy's name on TV. Uh, I mean, they will, like, they'll do some articles on WWE.com, a countdown to the top, IC champions, and stuff like that. It's not like his name is never mentioned in, like, story form, but he never gets mentioned on TV or anything major, anything like that. Uh, and this was a guy who, in his prime, on top in the Northeast, as the champion, he was the world champion, he was a big-time draw. Uh, he, I don't think he gets enough credit because... You know, Bruno San Martino sort of overshadows him. I think his title reign came between title runs for Bruno. I know it came after one. I think Bruno got the belt back after, but uh, I think he kind of gets overshadowed. I mean, that was the San Martino era where he held the title for like eight years or whatever it was and sold out Madison Square Garden a whole bunch of times. But Morales held the title for three years. And in those three years, he also sold out Madison Square Garden a bunch of times. Maybe not as many times as Bruno, but Bruno also had a much longer run on top. Morales only got the title because Bruno had had enough that first time. I mean, Bruno's talked about this in interviews. He he was being run ragged, and he was he was hurt. And he wanted to spend more time with his family, and he said, "I don't want I don't want to be the champion anymore." Otherwise, they never would have taken the title off of him. But they took the title off of him, and it ended up on, on Morales' waist. And he became the first Hispanic champion in WWE history, and it worked, especially with the Hispanic population in the Northeast. I, I don't know how he drew outside the area, but in New York, which was, I mean, New York was the epicenter for WWE at the time. I mean, they ran the Garden, I think literally every single month they ran shows at Madison Square Garden back then. Morales was the man. First ever Grand Slam champion in WWE history. Some people may think it's Shawn Michaels. It's not. You know, he was a tag team champion, intercontinental champion, WWE champion. As a matter of fact, he had more days as the intercontinental champion than anyone in history, including the Honky Tonk Man. Honky held it for 14 months. Morales held it 
couple of different times, but when you added everything up, technically he held it longer. Uh, even Chris Jericho, some people say, oh, you know, Chris Jericho is the greatest intercontinental champion of all time because he held it ten times. He held it ten times and still didn't hold it as many days as Morales did. So, you know, what does that really mean? Uh, but titles now, I mean, titles now are, are passed around a lot more than they were back then. But he's like a ghost. I mean, you rarely ever hear WWE mention the guy. No, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 95. Uh, I did not know this until recently, but he actually was not even there for the induction. Uh, he may be the only living person not to attend his own Hall of Fame induction. I can't, I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head. Uh, I don't know if that's due to any bad blood. I would think not if they inducted him. I mean, there was heat with them and Bruno, and Bruno didn't go into the Hall of Fame for almost two decades later. So things couldn't have been that bad between the two the two of them. I mean, I know Morales did some announcing for WCW around that time. He did the, uh, the uh, Spanish language announcing for them, so maybe that has something to do with it. Now, like I said before, the website, WWE.com, which you can tell some of the stuff they put on WWE.com, I kind of realized this when they did this whole full article praising Ring of Honor and interviewing Gabe Sapolsky. This was this was months and months ago. It's very apparent that Joey Styles and the people that write for WWE.com do not get their marching orders from anybody, any, anybody high up in the, in the food chain in WWE. They kind of are left to their own devices to do their own thing. And the website has done plenty of features that mention him. Uh, like I said, they'll have him listed as one of the greatest intercontinental champions... The network maybe would do a month dedicated to famous Hispanics in WWE. I think he was part of that. But he doesn't get the recognition he probably deserves for his place in history. I don't think he was overly enamored with the direction uh, Vince McMahon took WWE. Uh, I think he was a very old school guy, probably a lot like Bruno in that way. But he was never as public as Bruno was about hating Vince McMahon or hating the direction that wrestling had gone in. Uh, you don't find too many, uh, not too many interviews with the guy. I mean, maybe it was his choice to distance himself from from the wrestling business. I just think it's a little sad that you probably have a, a new generation of fans or, or even fans who came up in the Attitude Era, if, if that was their first kind of expose to wrestling. And they know, I mean, now they know Bruno Sammartino. They know the name Superstar Billy Graham. Guys like that. Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Because they're always mentioned. If they don't appear, they're at least mentioned in some way. But if you mention Pedro Morales, you'd probably get a lot of blank stares. You know, I don't, I don't know. Ch- champion for three years. Selling out the garden. First Grand Slam champion. First Hispanic to hold their world title. I think that's a pretty big deal. And uh, I'm sorry to hear he's not doing well. Monday Night Raw was live this past week from Everett, Washington. Although you would never know that if you watched the show. They kept calling it Seattle. It was actually Everett. I haven't given a plug recently to our Distraction Roll-Up counter. If you go to distractionrollup.com, I just updated it again this past week. It's still rolling on. We've not had one on Raw since June. We've had a bunch of distraction finishes. I guess that's their way around it. But no distraction finish roll-ups. Speaking of which, shout out to the guy in the no distraction roll-ups t-shirt that was sitting behind the announcers on Monday night. You can buy that shirt right now, by the way. Cheap plug. In our Pro Wrestling Tea store. I think it's working, folks. 
I think it's working. Keep buying the shirt. Only 14 of them so far. The uh, Not 14 shirts. Uh, 14 uh, distraction roll-up finishes so far this year out of 243 matches on Raw. So maybe they're finally starting to get the message. Raw opened with, uh, what else? A Seth Rollins promo. I literally changed the channel for 10 minutes. I was flipping between some cable news stuff and the Mets game. And when I flipped back to Raw, Rollins was still standing in the ring rambling on and on and on. I felt like I hadn't missed anything at all. I saw the tail end of a picture of John Cena up on the Titantron. So I can only imagine uh, how how that segment was. Didn't care enough to go back either. Cesaro walked out. He mocked Rollins for the same thing, rambling on and on and on. So the company is clearly self-aware that they are boring their audience with these opening 20-minute promos and uh, don't care. Cesaro wanted a shot at the championship. Rollins said his open challenge was a one-week deal. Kevin Owens came out. He mocked the guy who printed out all the Cesaro section signs to hand out. Hey, you know what? It may be one guy. It looked damn impressive on TV. This guy passed out all these signs. You would think the whole arena, everybody in the building was holding up a Cesaro section sign. It was the second week in a row, too. Randy Orton came out. He asked Kevin Owens if he had gained some weight and the internet lost its collective mind. And Owens, by the way, told Orton very uh, casually, no, he had not gained any weight. Uh, It sounded like an off-the-cuff remark that maybe they told Orton to say, uh, they being, you know, Vince McMahon or Kevin Dunn or whoever. I mean, there was a lot of Kevin Dunn hate on Twitter this week. I got in on it, too. I posted, like, a funny graphic. It was meant to be a joke. You know, people got the uh, the hashtag Fire Kevin Dunn trending as a hashtag over the belief that he was the one who was responsible for this. It sounds like he wasn't. The fact is, it doesn't even matter. I mean, the the, the person who, by the way, it was attributed to... I think it was Meltzer. He never actually said it was Kevin Dunn. It was people taking something completely unrelated that he had said and then twisting it, I guess, into the fact that Kevin Dunn had told Randy Orton to go out there and call Kevin Owens fat, which I don't doubt for a second Kevin Dunn may think that, but it was uh, it was unfair to place that on, on him this week. But, again, and this is not meant to be a defense of Kevin Dunn. I think he is poison. In that company, I think he should have been gone years ago. He is no more a judge of talent than the person working the register at Popeye's. You know, at least at Popeye's, you get three legs and a biscuit. Kevin Dunn doesn't give you anything except uh, a seizure. What he tells those camera guys to shake the camera around whenever there's a brawl at ringside. Like, somehow it makes the brawl that much more exciting to shake the freaking camera around and, and make people nauseous. One of the many things I will not miss once this guy retires and goes back to uh, building dams all day. Triple H came out. He made a three-way between Orton, Owens, and Cesaro for the winner to challenge Seth Rollins for the championship in the main event. That's two WWE title matches in two weeks. After a stretch of a couple of years of having no WWE title matches on Raw. In fact, uh, I don't remember where I read this, but I believe before all of this and, and last week with Neville... The last time that championship was defended on Raw, and we're not counting Rollins and Lesnar after WrestleMania because that was never a match, you'd have to go back to the TLC match on Raw with CM Punk and his staff infection. Uh, (laughs) Actually, I don't think he had a staff infection then, but 
Punk had come back early from a knee. I think he just had knee surgery, and they rushed him back, and he had that TLC match with Ryback, of all people. That was the last time the WWE title was defended on Raw before that match with Neville last week. That's pretty amazing, actually, when you think about it. But that's what happens when your ratings sink to near 20-year lows. I don't think it's a coincidence. We've now had two championship matches back-to-back weeks on this show. Team Bella beat Team Bad with Team PCB on commentary. So make sure you got all your team names straight here. So uh, PCB was on commentary. Actually, Paige was on commentary. Charlotte and Becky Lynch apparently died in their chairs, and they were resuscitated by the bell when the match ended. I mean, watching this, you would think they, they have the personality of a doorknob, these two women. Which they don't. Unfortunately, that did not come across here. This also ended the streak of Raw shows with 20 minutes of ring time for the women. Only one match this week, one about nine minutes. Just still an improvement. It broke down in the end with a giant brawl with all nine women. Crowd was going crazy for it. Crowd went crazy for a lot of things on this show. You know, the least they could have done was acknowledge the name of the actual city. <laughs> they were too ashamed to call it Everett. They just kept calling it Seattle. I mean, if that's how a small town crowd reacts, then you know what? I think they need to hit small towns more often because this crowd was great all night long. Uh, my favorite part of this whole diva brawl at, deal at the end here was the very brief little stare down we got between Charlotte and uh, Sasha Banks. In the ring, I think it would blow Trish and Mickey out of the water. Uh, they're going to have a three-way match at SummerSlam with all three teams. I believe the rules are that once one member of a team is eliminated, the entire team is gone. So uh, that takes place next weekend. Orton beat Cesaro and Kevin Owens in that three-way. Really fun match from what I saw of it. I spent the first half watching the Mets uh, kick ass against the Rockies. So any Colorado fans out there, sorry. Uh, It's such a weird thing to hear myself say that about the Mets in mid-August. But they are. I mean, they lost last night. Actually, they lost the last two nights. But uh, for the most part, they they are kicking ass. They're first in their division. First place. I want to be more excited than I am, but that 2007 season is is still fresh in my mind. One of the worst collapses in the history of baseball. To go from first to worst as quickly as they did that September, I, I don't take anything for granted. But when I flipped back, I saw Kevin Owens doing a cannonball dive out of the ring, which I haven't seen him do since his uh, NXT debut against CJ Parker, who is retiring, by the way. I'm glad I mentioned that. He announced, uh, C.J. Parker went on Twitter, he announced his last match is happening later this month at an indie show in Connecticut. He is wrestling EC3. I hope it wasn't all those things I said about him on the podcast. Drove the guy into a deep depression. and Now he's calling it quits. Finish was great. Owens sent Cesaro into the ropes for the pop-up powerbomb, but Cesaro vaulted over Owens... And right after he vaulted over Owens, Owens was just standing there, shocked. Randy Orton snuck up out of nowhere, caught Owens with an RKO. And then he dropped Cesaro with an RKO, got the pin. It's hard to hate on that finish because it was so well done and the people were going crazy. It was actually really, really fun. But after Orton hit that RKO on Owens, Cesaro should have propelled Orton up into the air and caught him coming down with an uppercut and got the pin. I'm sorry. That should have been the finish of the match. They should have done Cesaro versus Rollins in the main event. You could have Kevin Owens interfere, keep Cesaro hot, put more heat on their match at SummerSlam. Rollins keeps the title. I I don't buy these reports that they put Orton in there 
and they did the non-finish with him and Rollins just in case John Cena couldn't wrestle at SummerSlam. John Cena was cleared to wrestle the next day. I knew that John Cena was wrestling at the pay-per-view the night he broke his friggin' nose. (laughs) Anybody with a brain knew that John Cena was not missing that show. They should have given that spot to Cesaro. I like the backstage promo with uh, Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose. And I hate even thinking about splitting the two of them up because they're just so much better together. But they've really been playing up the whole best friends forever shtick lately with Reigns and Ambrose. And wrestling fans all their lives have been conditioned to be paranoid people. And to automatically assume that if your best friend is, is being nice to you, that he or she will inevitably hit you with a chair or throw you through a window. That goes for siblings too, not just friends. What a what a terrible way to go through life. So, it's only a matter of time. I think Ambrose stands to benefit the most by going heel more than Roman Reigns does for two reasons. Number one, he always loses anyway. As a matter of fact, he lost to Luke Harper on this show, and Harper is an even bigger loser than Ambrose is. That's number one. Number two, I just think he'd be so good at it. And I've said that from the beginning. I said when everything settles in, they settle into their proper roles, I think... Roman Reigns is being groomed to be the next big baby face. Is it going to work? I don't know. But that's his role. I think that's the best role. For- With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For him right now. Dean Ambrose is going to be an ultra heel. I think the real money in him is as a heel. Not that he can't make money and be a draw as a babyface, but I just think he'd be better as a heel. And Seth Rollins is going to end up being better as a babyface. And I still feel the same way. I still feel that way. Uh, Ambrose said he didn't have many friends growing up. It's nice to have one, like Roman, who will bail you out when you're in a Mexican border town. Roman said he was Dean's first real friend. If Dean does turn on him, I want Ambrose to do what Batista did to Rey Mysterio. And just start yelling at him, you know, You were supposed to be my friend! And then just start kicking his ass. Still one of the funniest moments on YouTube. Daniel Bryan was on Miz TV. Didn't really have much to say. He got a ridiculous reaction, seeing as how they were in Washington, and he grew up in Aberdeen. They would not let Miz speak. They were still cheering for Bryan. Big Show interrupted to chance of, please retire, and he got angry and told the people to find someone to retire him. And that was the cue for Ryback to come out, Recovered from his staff infection, he knocked Big Show out of the ring, laid out Miz with a meat hook, and celebrated with Daniel Bryan. So it looks like uh, Ryback is 
in tip-top shape, and he will be defending the title in a triple threat against Miz and Big Show at SummerSlam. Neville, and, and playing celebrity softball on Wednesday in Brooklyn. Uh, Neville pinned King Barrett with the red arrow, and then was attacked by Stardust after the match. Stephen Amell, the green arrow guy, was at ringside. Stardust came over, he pie-faced him, scurried back into the ring. Amel then hopped the barricade, jumped up onto the apron, and then propelled himself over the top rope into the ring before taking down Stardust with a double leg. It's like one of those flying water bugs that I mentioned previously here on the podcast. I've killed two of those so far this weekend, by the way. Thank God for my vacuum hose. Otherwise, I'd have to move into a hotel for a few days. At SummerSlam, it's going to be the Red Arrow and the Green Arrow teaming up against Stardust and Barrett. Amel actually injured himself at the gym a couple of days ago, lifting a weight bar. He went on uh, Facebook and posted a video, and uh, he can speak, but he, he cracked his jaw. He took a big chunk out of his tongue. He sounded like Kramer on that episode of Seinfeld when they thought he was special, <laughs> but... Uh, He's still training for the match, so he should be good to go. Just don't cut any promos. Sheamus did an interview backstage with JoJo and called Randy Orton boring. Ain't that the fucking pot calling the kettle black? I got a nice belly laugh out of that one. And in the main event, Randy Orton and Seth Rollins for the WWE Championship. Orton caught Rollins in midair as he was going for his springboard knee off the top rope. Caught him with a picture-perfect RKO. Randy Orton is quite good at that. Orton, uh, he didn't even cover Rollins for the pin right away. He took a few seconds to admire the aftermath of his masterpiece before covering him. And when he did, Sheamus showed up, pulled Orton out of the ring for the DQ. Sheamus then gave Rollins a brogue kick. He attempted to cash in his money in the bank briefcase, but the referee would have none of it. <laughs> the referee was, was practically arguing with Sheamus uh, because Orton was late on his cue. Orton, uh, so, so the referee, he just stood there, basically telling him no, and then you could see when Orton came in, the ref's like, you know, turn around, and Orton, uh, or rather, Sheamus did turn around, he turned around right into an RKO, and as many of you so astutely pointed out, why wouldn't Randy Orton wait for Sheamus to cash in and then cost him the championship? That's a very good question, because he's got venom in his veins and shit for brains, that's why. Obviously, he should have waited. But if you remember, and and the announcers don't mention these things because these are past storylines that are three, four years old and five years old. It's not worth mentioning. But if you remember, Randy Orton, and actually this is not much of a stretch from the truth, Randy Orton is a hothead. Remember, he's got IED. He punted his own boss in the head. And then, not only did he punt his own boss in the skull... He was allowed to compete that Sunday in the Royal Rumble match, and he won the damn thing. So, you know, maybe I've been doing it all wrong. I want a raise. I want a pay raise. Instead of working hard, maybe I'll just kick my boss in the crotch. And then an extra thousand will magically show up in my next paycheck. Only in wrestling. We had two quality matches this week. Fun little celebrity angle. Hot crowd. That's really all I ask for. Actually, I ask for two-hour shows and for their storylines to make logical sense, but I'll die before that happens, so I take what I can get. That's enough for me to give this week's show a thumbs up. 
I'm actually not wearing pants, and that's how I watch NXT every single week. NXT this week, Ty Dillinger, who is now doing a Perfect 10 gimmick, where he holds up 10 fingers and the crowd chants Perfect 10 at him, beats Solomon Crow. He's not NXT's resident little monster. He's more like NXT's resident Barry Horowitz with a bad haircut. Dillinger pulled down his knee pad and won by slamming Crow's head down into his knee. So the fact that they are pushing Ty Dillinger and not Solomon Crow uh, does not speak very well for Mr. Crow. Baron Corbin pinned Axel Tischer with the end of days in 30 seconds and then got on the mic and complained about the lack of competition. Steve Cutler ran down, or as most people watching or listening to this podcast probably thought, who? Yeah, he ran down. He got beaten by Corbin last week, and he was once again quickly disposed of again here. Samoa Joe came out. He challenged Baron Corbin to a match. Corbin declined and said, hey, I just beat two men. He went to leave. He brushed shoulders with Joe and then proceeded to punch Joe into oblivion. I couldn't believe they would make Joe look that weak. I mean, Joe came out to confront him. Corbin backed off like a bitch. And then Corbin was the one who ended up beating down Joe. (laughs) But Joe did manage to put him in the coquina clutch, which the announcers shockingly called by that name. And he put Corbin to sleep. Can't say choked. He didn't choke him out. Choking is not allowed in WWE. Tyler Breeze cut a promo on Jushin Thunder Liger, called him Yushin. Finn Balor was in action. He beat Baby Kane, Marcus Louis, with the coup de gras. After the match, Kevin Owens attacked Balor from behind, tried to powerbomb him on the apron, but Balor grabbed hold of the ropes and saved himself, ended up drop-kicking Owens through the barricade at ringside, and then he grabbed Kevin Owens, threw him into the ring, which probably was not wise because Kevin Owens ended up delivering a pop-up powerbomb and posed with the NXT Championship before dropping it and walking out. You know, Kevin Owens has a pretty big weekend coming up. He's got, on Saturday night, he's main eventing what is a very big, maybe the biggest NXT TakeOver show yet. This is a big show for them. Sold out, 13,000 people at the Barclays Center. Kevin Owens is headlining in a ladder match. Uh, what I believe is, I believe the first ever ladder match in NXT history against Finn Balor. And the very next night in the same building, he's got to be okay for a match with Cesaro. So hopefully he comes out of that ladder match pretty much unscathed. But, you know, he may not be challenging for a championship or anything at SummerSlam, but that's still a pretty big match. And that's a big weekend for Kevin Owens, so you can say what you want to about the guy and all this talk about people in the company that are against him and some are for him and people calling him fat and thinking he's overweight. Uh, he's in a, a, a decision, or not a decision, but a, a position, rather, to really deliver next weekend and have two of the, the best performances he's ever had against two pretty goddamn great opponents, so I'm looking forward to that. Greg Hamilton interviewed the Villains. Backstage, who say they will have somebody there to take care of Alexa Bliss during their match against Blake and Murphy at NXT TakeOver. Alexa then showed up and slapped them again because there are a couple of vaginas, these two guys. I'm going to take a guess here and guess that their secret weapon at TakeOver to fend off Alexa is blue pants. 
They just came out with a shirt for Blue Pants. Her first piece of WWE merchandise. I wasn't even sure she was under contract to them. She must have some kind of deal if they're making merchandise for her. It's literally a pair of Blue Pants on a shirt. Instead of a shirt, why not just sell a pair of actual Blue Pants? (laughs) I can't be the only one who thought of this. That would seem to make more sense to me. But... If they've got merchandise for this woman now, they must have something planned for her. So that's just my guess, that it turns out to be her. For the main event, Sasha Banks joined Rich, Byron, and Corey on commentary for the number one contenders match between Bailey and Becky Lynch. The winner would meet Sasha for the championship takeover. This was a very good match, as you would expect, given who was involved. I don't think Bailey gets as much credit as, let's say, uh, Charlotte or Becky would for, for her in-ring work. But she's uh, pretty damn good. Lynch got the disarmor on Bailey. She was close enough, though, to reach for the ropes. Second attempt by Becky for the disarmor, and Bailey turned it into a small package for the pin. Maybe it wasn't a small package. Some kind of roll-up for the pin. And it will be Bailey challenging Sasha Banks for the championship at TakeOver, which brings us to TakeOver, which is coming up at the Barclays Center this Saturday in Brooklyn. I probably won't be doing a show before then, so I figured let's do the predictions now. So let's run through this card here from the bottom, work our way up to the top. We have the debut of the former UHA Nation on this show, Apollo Crews. We don't know who his opponent is, not that it matters, but he will be in action. We have Samoa Joe against Baron Corbin. I'm going to go with Baron Corbin here. I figure the only reason they're putting Joe in there with him is to help put the new guy over. Uh, So Corbin is, uh, is my pick. Tyler Breeze and Jushin Thunder Liger. I'll tell you what. This is probably the toughest match to predict on this entire show. Logic would dictate that Liger puts the WWE guy over, but Liger still wrestles for New Japan. Regal is the one who claims he called him to do the show as a favor to him. Breeze loses nothing if he actually loses to Jushin Liger. I mean, come on. But I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say Liger wins. I mean, it'd be nice, it'd be nice for him to win this one being that it's probably his one and only WWE match ever that he'll ever have. And like I said, I mean, Breeze doesn't lose anything for it. I figure he's coming in as a favor to them. I don't think he's coming in as a favor to them and then doing the job. Well, who knows? Not that it matters either way. But I'm going to go with Liger getting the win. Blake and Murphy against the Vaudevillains for the NXT Tag Team titles. Like I said, if the Vaudevillains have a surprise in their corner, my prediction is that it turns out to be Blue Pants. I still cannot fathom for the life of me why Kaz and Enzo are not on the show. I did not read the spoilers for the Go Home show that airs this Wednesday. It's very possible this is addressed. Maybe they get added to the match. Maybe they give them some other match on the undercard. They have to be on the show in some way. I mean, it's completely foolish to think that they would be in Brooklyn and not be on the show. Although, I I think they're doing a TV taping after the TakeOver special ends. So they could be on that show and still technically come out before the crowd. But to not have them on the TakeOver show, it just doesn't make any sense. Unless they're calling them up to the main roster and they're going to be on Raw next Monday, which I guess is possible. It's very possible, actually. But I still feel like they deserve to be on the show and they're going to get a monster reaction. But like I said, you know what? If, if their plan is to debut these three on Raw the following Monday, Raw's in the same building. So maybe they don't want to blow their load on a, on a reaction on TakeOver and they want to save it for Monday. It's possible possible but as far as the match goes i'm gonna say blake and murphy retain 
logic might dictate otherwise, given that the Vaude villains already had a match and they lost. They were screwed out of it. Now they get the rematch. The good guys win. I don't think the good guys win here. I'm, I'm picking uh, Blake and Murphy. Sasha Banks and Bailey for the NXT Women's Championship. I went back to check. It was way back when on Sound Off 344. Feels like so long ago. That I thought Bailey would beat Charlotte to win the NXT Women's title. That was September of last year. Almost a full year ago. I think it was on one of the TakeOver specials. And she did not win it. She has not won the championship since. She's not won the championship ever. The time has come. Sasha Banks now is a main roster girl. Bailey has had to earn this shot. They've done this storyline where she's come back from injury and she's beaten Emma. She's beaten Charlotte. Now she beat Becky Lynch. She beat the best of the best that the NXT women's division has to offer. Now she's up against the best. It's time to pull the trigger and put the title on her for the big celebration in Brooklyn. I think that's what we're going to get. I think it's Bailey's night. I think she wins the championship. And the main event, Finn Balor and Kevin Owens for the NXT championship in a ladder match. Seems pretty obvious to me. I suppose they could always uh, shock us. But I'm sticking with Finn Balor to win the championship. And not just that Kevin Owens is a main roster guy, which he is, and he doesn't need the NXT title. Finn Balor is going to be a big star in WWE. And I have no doubt in my mind, at least by Triple H, he has been earmarked for big things down the road once he hits the main roster. He's the guy that's going to be headlining WrestleMania probably multiple times, have the big elaborate entrance at WrestleMania like all the big stars do. He just started his NXT title reign. I don't even has he even defended the title once? I don't I don't know that he's had a single title defense since he won it. Not at a takeover special. This is his first big title defense. I can't see them beating him. It just doesn't make sense to beat the guy. So Finn Balor will retain, he will remain the NXT champion. And those are your NXT takeover predictions. Like I said earlier, I'm I'm looking forward to with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To the show a lot. I'll be at the show. And so if you are planning on being at the show, perhaps uh, if, you, if you see me, say hello. Maybe uh, some of you guys will be there sporting sound-up shirts. Have a very quick TNA note here. It's your uh, WTF, what the fuck? Why am I saying WTF? Just just say it, what the fuck. Story of the week. The other one, I guess. I guess the, the first one would be that China stuff. 
Barry on our Facebook page brought to my attention that Shop TNA is selling a vinyl Barack Obama mask for five bucks. Now, it's not accessible through ShopTNA.com, but TNA does sell stuff in their store on Amazon. And if you go to Amazon and type in, this is what you got to type in. Type in Let's Party Obama Vinyl Mask. It comes up. It's made by a company called Disguise Inc. But it clearly states, ships from and sold by Shop TNA. And when you click the link for the Shop TNA store on Amazon, it is indeed the official uh, TNA store. It's got all TNA merchandise and DVDs, everything. And the thing about the mask, if you look up the listing for it, I love how it says, like, it comes in brown. (laughs) You know, like, in case you were hoping for another option for a Barack Obama mask, just know that it comes in brown. So don't be disappointed if it doesn't come in white or, like, charcoal black. (laughs) Sorry, you know, you, you can't get the white Obama mask. Brown only. If you want the white mask, you can buy a Mitt Romney one that TNA is also apparently selling through Amazon. So, they're a little late to the party. Oh, I guess they have uh, leftover in their inventory. So, it's, that's why it's marked down from uh, 20-something bucks to 5 bucks. This is one of the weirdest fucking things I've seen in a while. So, if you're into that kind of thing, if you want your uh, Obama mask or Romney mask, you better hurry. Because the Obama one, there's only three left. Last time I checked, which was a few days ago, they may hey they may be sold out by now. But last I checked, there were only three left, so get right on that. TNA needs the money. Ring of Honor on Destination America back to ROH after three weeks off. I got I, you know them ditching that 8 p.m. airing really threw me off. But I I did catch this week's show, pretty standard fare, which by ROH standards means it was a good wrestling show. We have Watanabe of New Japan against ACH. They had a chop fest, a chop contest to start the match. ACH got the win with the 450 off the top. You know, Watanabe, he's a talented guy and all, but I, I don't know. He came out of the New Japan dojo a few years ago. They sent him to the U.S. to work and improve and get more well-rounded. He He's worked some local, you know, indie shows here in Brooklyn So he's been stateside now for a while. I hear now he may be on his way back to New Japan soon. They're going to take him back. I don't see him becoming one of those top-tier elite New Japan guys. I just don't see it in him. I I don't know if that's what they have in mind for him to be. He's solid. You know, he's a solid wrestler. I just don't see what the major appeal would be for him when you've got so many talented guys who, who frankly, are a lot better uh, in New Japan. So... Anyway, House of Truth, Donovan Dijak and Jay Diesel against War Machine. Jay Lethal was out there doing color commentary. He, of course, being a member of the House of Truth, he is defending his television title against Hanson in three weeks. Not the boy band, the uh, Hanson from War Machine. Although I would pay good money to see Jay Lethal wrestle the boy band. War Machine won with their fallout move. Got in Lethal's face after the match. Hanson did. Unless you've seen Hanson up close in person, which I have, I think the first time I saw him live may have been at last year's final battle, whatever that first show they ever did at Terminal 5 was. Roe, I think Roe was out injured, he was in like a motorcycle wreck, so they had Hanson wrestling as a single for a while. This guy is enormous in person, just 
a gigantic person. <laughs> and I don't mean gigantic, like really, really tall or really, really fat or anything like that. Just a thick dude, like Rusev. When I first saw Rusev on NXT, you're just you're struck by how big this guy is, but not like I said, big in the tall or fat way. He's just built. You know, I had an aisle seat for that show, and I just remember him walking by me. He walked to the back, and it was like blocking out the sun. It's crazy. Adam Page won a quick squash, then challenged Jay Briscoe to come on out and fight him. Jay Briscoe was not there. Meanwhile, BJ Whitmer, who was out there on crutches with Page and Colby Carino, he goes up to Steve Carino, who was on commentary. He wants to know why Steve Carino is allowed to be out there. After Carino put his hands on Whitmer a few weeks ago, he said he should be banned from commentary. Clearly this man does not watch Monday Night Raw. Carino puts his headset down. Whitmer is trying to goad him into punching him in the face. Nigel McGuinness runs out there, tries to break things up. He sends Carino to the back, so Kevin Kelly gets to call the main event by himself. Actually, Adam Cole came out, and he did commentary with uh, Kevin Kelly for the main event, which was The Kingdom of which Adam Cole is a member, for now. Matt Taven and Mike Bennett with Maria. Perhaps my favorite star in all of ROH, Maria. Against Red Dragon. Uh, cool spot near the end where Kyle O'Reilly and Matt Taven, they're in the ring, exchanging uh, kicks. And O'Reilly is, he kind of falls back into the ropes. He does the Dean Ambrose rebound off the rope spot, which he actually took from Nigel McGuinness, so it's technically the Nigel McGuinness spot. But as he's rebounding and and hanging out of the ring about to come back in, Mike Bennett is outside and he super kicks Kyle O'Reilly right in the face. And O'Reilly falls through the ropes and out to the floor. He picks up O'Reilly on the outside in a pile driver position. Matt Taven comes off the top rope with a spike pile driver on the floor. So O'Reilly is out. He's done for. And this mortifies Adam Cole. He does not approve of what his stablemates are doing here. Back inside, Bobby Fish tries to fight both guys off on his own. He ends up eating a spike pile driver as well. Kingdom pick up the win. They try for another spike pile driver on Bobby Fish after the match is already over, but Adam Cole comes inside, stops them, and they leave without Adam Cole to end the show. So looks like we're getting a babyface Adam Cole very soon. Well, Adam Cole is great, babyface or heel. I, I really wasn't even familiar with some of the really heelish stuff he did, like in PWG. I, I ended up seeing some stuff on YouTube of some of the stuff he's done there. He's entertaining no matter which way you slice it. He's a guy who I think WWE was, was crazy to pass. I'm pretty sure they passed on him. I think he went to a tryout and they passed on him. But I think at some point he's he's going to end up there. He He's like your prototypical... WWE guy that they would love if maybe they would love him more if he was a few inches taller you could say that about a lot of guys but he is he's a great wrestler he's a great personality he's a, I think he'd be a great baby face maybe an even better heel but he just carries himself like when you listen to him in interviews he's all suited up he's very articulate the way he speaks he's a young guy he's only like 26 I think or something he'll, he'll end up there soon enough not that I'm in any rush to see him leave ROH. I'm just saying at some point he's going to end up there. Lucha Underground. In the absence of a review, I'm very sad I have no Lucha Underground to review this week, but I'm happy that I, I have some notes. Uh, Eric Van Wagenen is the executive producer for Lucha Underground. He made the rounds, did some interviews this week. He did a, an AMA on Reddit. 
And we now know a little bit more about a possible second season, which I know a lot of you, like me, are waiting on bated breath for a second season of Lucha Underground. According to him, <clears throat> there is a 99.9% chance of there being a second season. He says it's all but certain there will be one. There's a reason that they had the to-be-continued graphic at the end of Ultima Lucha. It was there not just to tease us. He said it was more of a promise. So that's encouraging. Uh, he says January of next year is likely going to be the return date for them. It won't be October or sometime later this year. That's a little too quick. But uh, January is looking like the target date. Now, there is a correction from last week. He said they did not spend $20 million on the first season. That had been reported Uh, I mentioned it here on the podcast last week. According to him, it's not true. But they do have money issues that they have to overcome, and there's only two options. They're either going to raise enough money from somewhere to do a second season the way they did the first one, or uh, they're going to have to do the show on the cheap. And I don't think anybody wants to see uh, a cheapened version of Lucha Underground. I mean, I would take a cheapened version of Lucha Underground under no Lucha Underground at all, but... I hate the idea that they would have to scale back on production or they would have to fire a bunch of guys and not bring them back. Uh, I don't want that either. So I'm hoping they can raise that money from, from somewhere. It just seems to me like you have people, whether you're in TV or movies, people start Kickstarter campaigns, which he, he's addressed that before too. He said people, you know, fans have said, hey, can we start like a GoFundMe for Lucha Underground? He says that's not something they're interested in because then what do you do for a season three and... Of course, my response to that would be, who cares about Season 3? I'm focused on Season 2, right? Take it one step at a time. If, if there was enough fan support for a GoFundMe to raise money for, for Lucha Underground to do the show the way they want to do it, I'd give money. I think it's a great idea. I mean, Veronica Mars, they started a GoFundMe, this was a few years ago, to do a freaking Veronica Mars movie, and they raised like $2.5 million dollars. Now, I'm not saying they're going to raise $2.5 million for Lucha Underground, but if they can raise that much money for a Veronica Mars movie, you know what? They can do it for Lucha Underground, too. Uh, He said L.A. is expensive to film. They want to come back to the temple in Boyle Heights, but they may have to move if they do a second season. That also makes me very sad. They kind of set that up with the finale. If you remember when uh, Dario was rushing out of the temple, just grabbed some money and grabbed some stuff and hopped in the car with Black Lotus, and they were driving somewhere. So if they have to move, it's already built into the storyline. The last time we saw Dario Cueto, he was on the move. And if they are able to raise enough money and come back to the temple, then I'm sure they could find a way to explain that too. In the Reddit AMA that he did, he said that he and Canyon Seaman have known each other for years outside of anything having to do with pro wrestling. Seaman is the former volleyball guy that Triple H hired to run talent development for WWE. And he said it's strange to think that uh, the two of them could be fighting over talent, but that may end up happening with uh, Angelico, because apparently uh, Canyon Seaman was at, it may have been the PWG show recently, I think Regal was there, and he may have been there as well, scouting talent, and they were scouting Angelico. WWE was very impressed with him which anybody who's seen him on Lucha Underground would know, wouldn't be surprised by that. And uh, anyway, Van Wagenen said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he said that if he and Seaman have to compete for for this guy, and if Seaman steals Angelico from Lucha Underground, he said, I will look for you, I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. (laughs) I like the way these guys do business. Very serious, these uh, Lucha Underground guys. 
They already killed somebody on the show. I don't doubt for a second that they would kill Canyon Seaman. Krista Joseph did a Q&A last Sunday at the Wrestling Guy store out in California. He is the co-executive producer of Lucha Underground, former writer for WWE. A few interesting notes from the Q&A that he did. Uh, he said originally they had an entire storyline arc for the season, the first season of Lucha Underground. But Pentagon Jr., Drago, and Phoenix were not able to make the first night of tapings. There was some kind of visa issue. I think they may have gotten caught at the border, so they couldn't make it in. They had to improvise. So they ended up hot-shotting the very first match between Prince Puma and Johnny Mundo on that first episode. Uh, They had wanted to save that first match for later in the season. They ended up doing it when they did their uh, all-night-long Iron Man match. Uh, But he said, as it turned out, the way everything turned out, He wouldn't change a thing. He's happy things worked out the way they did. He said at one point, Martin Cassius, formerly from Tough Enough, he plays Marty the Moth Martinez on Lucha Underground. He was the one who was supposed to be Mil Muertes. I can't even picture that. (laughs) I can't even picture him in that role. I'm very happy that things worked out the way they did with uh, Ricky Banderas. Now, this is, the, this is the nugget that I wanted to really mention here, because this is just, when you really put it in these terms, it's so striking. The writing team for Lucha Underground consists of a grand total of three people. WWE's writing team, 30 people. Now, even if you take into account the fact that WWE has a much larger roster and the extra hours of television, Lucha Underground's a one-hour show. WWE has three hours on Mondays alone, let alone SmackDown and NXT. Although NXT is separate, that that's a different... Actually, NXT only has, I think, about one or two people who write the show. And more often than not, NXT is a coherent show where things make sense. Some weeks it's even very good. So yes, WWE, they have a bigger roster. They have more hours of TV. Doesn't matter. There's no reason... For their writing team to have that many people. 30 people. What do you need 30 people for? (laughs) Lucha Underground has three writers. And people are begging for a second season. WWE has 30. And most people want less. Not more. What does that tell you? That tells you there's a flaw in the system and it needs to be fixed. Even, even the idea that I had when I was talking about the Divas Revolution nonsense a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know what? If you really want to put the focus on the women and start giving them like stories and promo time. and Instead of just throwing them out there. Oh, we have Team PCP and, and LSD and you know whatever else. And just throw them out there in these random matches. You have 30 people, 25 people, whatever the exact number is that are, that are contributing ideas to the show. Why can't you take one or two people and have them as dedicated writers for the women? You know, like, hey, you know, Mopey and Dopey, come on over here. You guys are going to be in charge. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Charge of the women. 
And you could do that with other things on the show too. I mean, they don't have like a like a cruiserweight division or a minis division. They don't have all these different divisions. But if they did, you could take one or two people and say, "Listen, your only job, your only, your sole focus is to concentrate on the women and come up with ideas and pitch ideas for the women." And then ultimately, we talk about them. It goes through Vince. It goes through Triple H. Whoever they're always going to be involved. But you have people who are dedicated to nothing else but that. That's their sole focus. That way, we can get some actual, you know, solid stories. Things maybe will make sense. They have more time to dedicate to the women and not have to worry about who Seth Rollins is going to face and who Kevin o- who's going to make this week's Kevin Owens fat joke and all this other stuff. If you're going to have that many writers, at least take a few here and there and, like, give them a specific role, which is something I don't think they do. I've never heard of them doing that before. Other writers who have been hired and they've left have never said that that's how they do things. If you're going to have that many people, at least do that. They don't even do that. So why do you need so many writers for? <laughs> I was I was amazed. When you really think of the contrast there, three compared to 30. Or look at NXT. It's very similar, right? Also like Lucha Underground, a one-hour show, smaller roster, so it's a little bit easier. They've got one or two people. And then, you know, things get filtered through Triple H. And it works. NXT is like the hottest thing right now. I mean, even if the shows... I think the shows themselves, week to week, have lost a little bit of luster in recent weeks. But I'm still enjoying it. And and, and as a brand, as a touring brand, NXT is the hottest thing in wrestling right now. They seem to be doing just fine. They don't need 10 people, 15 people to write their shows. If you had 10 people in charge of writing one hour of NXT, the show would suck. Joseph also said that Arn Anderson watches Lucha Underground, as do a lot of people in WWE. He also heard that Shawn Michaels is into the show, which would surprise me, because I get the sense the last thing that Shawn Michaels does when he's at home is watch wrestling. He even admits he doesn't watch WWE week to week. Hey, who can blame him? You really think he's going to sit there and watch three hours of that every single week? But according to Joseph, he's heard that Shawn Michaels is a fan of the show. Uh, One last nugget that he offered, and this is from his days as a writer in WWE. And for those wondering who may not know who Krista Joseph is, he was the one, they put him on TV sometimes as Big Dick Johnson, but he was a writer with them for many, many years. He said Triple H was supposed to be the anonymous Raw general manager, and that the payoff for the Vince McMahon limo explosion storyline, which I still get asked about all the time, that was supposed to be Vince faking his own death as a way to see who would then take over the company, in his place and see if that person was worthy enough of the spot. I guess, I mean, my guess would be that he would deem they weren't and then they would there would be a big uh, power struggle back and forth. But yes, he was going to fake his own death just to see who would take over in his place. Let's get to the mailbag. If you have questions, you can email me, thesolomonster at gmail.com. Please include your name and where you are from when you write in. We have an audio question to kick things off here from Derek about the Tough Enough Judges. Hey, Solid Monsters. Derek Jones here. I just had a question about what really is the point of the Tough Enough Judges? Uh, they just sit there, they critique the uh, contestants, and they you know give their thoughts about all that kind of stuff, but they really don't serve any purpose. They put people in the bottom three, but, I mean, the host, Chris Jericho, could easily do that himself, and they have no input on who gets eliminated and who all that kind of stuff you know they can use their saves but again that could be something that the host himself could do 
what exactly is the point of the tough enough judges? Well, I mean, there's no need for them. I mean, they directly affect things through the saves, but that's about the only way. They, they really don't have any other direct impact on the show. Uh, they have them there for two reasons. One, to create drama, and two, because they want to have big names on the show. That's why they had Hulk Hogan on there before they booted him off. What other possible reason would there be to have Hulk Hogan on Tough Enough? They had Hogan, they had Daniel Bryan, they had Paige, who I'm guessing is one of their more popular divas. So they wanted some big names, they wanted to create drama. But do you need them? No, you don't need them. But you could say that for any reality show. I mean, look at American Idol. Did you really need to have Simon Cowell on there, you know, insulting people and have Randy Jackson and whoever else was there as a judge? You could have just had Ryan Seacrest go out there and pick and choose who goes on and who doesn't. Or America's Got Talent. Why'd they put Howard Stern on there? Why do you think they put Howard Stern on there? Because they thought Howard Stern would be a draw. And Howard Stern would create some controversy. I don't know if it worked or not. I know Stern's been on the show at least a couple of years. I think he's off now. I guess it didn't work well enough. But you could say that about any reality show. Do you need to have those judges there? No. You don't need to have them there. But there's a reason why they do. And why they go out and they find these big names, uh, besides ratings, I guess, to, to be judges. They want to create drama. Unfortunately for them, one of their judges created a lot of drama, just not on the show. And then they got rid of him, and in his place they put Miz. Joey! In Canada, how would you feel about a WrestleMania bout between Brock Lesnar and Floyd Mayweather Jr.? WWE has made a ton of money using both in the past. So it's, well, actually, they didn't make that much money off Mayweather as much as you would think. But um, anyway, he says, especially on the WrestleMania platform, it doesn't have to be a great fight by any means, but it can certainly be an attraction to break the attendance record. Both these men have had... Enough notoriety in the world of combat sports that it would bring in a lot of mainstream eyeballs outside the WWE bubble. Oh, I mean, it would do huge business, especially if uh, Mayweather embraces the heel role the way that he did before his match with Big Show. I know when Mayweather first came in, he was being positioned as the babyface. I think the original plan may have been for a tag match. It was going to be him and Rey Mysterio against, uh, I forgot who, but uh, Mysterio got hurt. What else is new? Couldn't wrestle. So it became this one-on-one boxer versus wrestler match. And surprise, surprise, you know, the wrestling fans decided to get behind the wrestler. And Floyd Mayweather turned into this big heel. I mean, Mayweather's personality, he's a natural-born heel. He's so hateable, you want to see the guy get punched in the face. Uh, So if he embraced that for a match against Brock, I mean, do unbelievable business. I don't think... Uh, Mayweather really meant as much as WWE thought he would at, you know, based on the WrestleMania buy rate that year. I think that was in 08. Uh, but he's an even bigger star now than he was then. You put him in there with Brock, I mean, they would get a ton of mainstream exposure. ESPN, I mean, they would be all over that. It'd be nonstop coverage of that match right up until bell time. Imagine the promo battles between Mayweather and Paul Heyman. I think for that reason alone, they should make the match. So yeah, absolutely. If, if they can make that match happen, if Mayweather is is true to his word that this fight he has coming up, I think he might have a fight coming up next month, but whatever his next fight is, if that's it, and he's going to retire, he wants to retire un, unbeaten, and he's done with boxing, and he's got to find something else to do, it kind of makes sense. You know, he's obviously a fan of WWE, he's worked with them before, they were nice to him, he was nice to them, they left on amicable terms... I mean, if they could make that match, they would be fools 
they would be fools not to do it. Now, I am no Mayweather fan. Let me make that perfectly clear. I think Mayweather is a piece of garbage. And would I personally want to do business with him? Probably not. But you asked the question, could that match draw? The question, it's not a question. I mean, absolutely, I think that match could draw. So let me just make that very clear. That's what we're talking about here. I'm not talking about my personal preference, whether I like the guy or not, because I don't. Uh, he's a great fighter, but that's pretty much where it starts and stops. You say fight, though. I, it would have to be a wrestling match, not a boxing fight. You know, Brock has to wear gloves uh, or an MMA fight. It has to be a pro wrestling match. So I don't think the match itself would be any good. But it almost doesn't even matter. It's, it's like Undertaker and Sting. I don't think the match itself would be very good. But the build-up, if they do it right, with this being both guys' retirement match, the video packages they could get out of it, it would be a huge attraction. Huge. So I think it's a great idea. Even better if Ronda Rousey is on the show. Because the idea of... Just the idea of the two of them being on the same card, in the same building, at the same time would get even more people uh, talking about WrestleMania. And I don't think Mayweather would ever do it, but if they could somehow convince this guy, like, listen, put your personal pride aside for a second, you're going to make a lot of money, right? He's all about the money. If they could convince him in that match with Brock, however they work the match out, whatever the finish is, if Rousey is there and they want to incorporate her into this, even just as a surprise at the end of the match... She gets involved, however she gets involved. And you build to a face-to-face moment in a, in a WWE ring in front of this gigantic crowd at WrestleMania with cameras, every freaking media camera that you could think of shooting this. And you have Mayweather and Rousey in the ring together. And Rousey gives him like a judo throw the way that she did to Stephanie at WrestleMania this year. Just for that moment of her like throwing down Mayweather. Like I said, it ain't ever going to happen Mayweather would never allow it to happen. But, you know, if he's done boxing and he's all about the money and he wanted to make for a great sports center moment, I'm just saying, I can't think of a bigger moment than that. that that's the only thing people would be talking about when WrestleMania was over. So, Damien says, I was listening to Pro Wrestling Torch earlier this week, and the guy on there seemed to imply that the reason for the run-ins in the Sting Triple H match was because Vince McMahon was not happy with Sting's performance. Have you heard anything about this? That theory seems absurd to me, and the match wasn't even terrible. There also seemed to be an implication that WWE is disappointed in Sting. Well, I didn't hear what was said. I don't know who said it, but that's complete nonsense. Uh, How could Vince McMahon be unhappy with Sting's performance before he even performs? That doesn't even make any sense. So, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe Damien misheard him. I don't know. That just doesn't make any sense to me. They had those run-ins planned the whole time. You know, it, it, the whole thing, was that was the whole storyline of the match. The Monday Night Wars, us versus them, one last time. I mean, what, is, what does the guy think? You know, Vince McMahon told Hulk Hogan in the middle of the match, he was backstage, he saw Hulk. He's like, hey, go throw on an NWO shirt and go out there and save the match. You know, WWE has no reason to be disappointed in Sting seeing as how the guy is sitting at home on his ass for months while they continue to make money off Sting shirts and Sting action figures and Sting DVDs. And I think Sting was the cover boy, if I, if I remember correctly, for their 2K15 game last year. And their 2K15 game did amazing business. They made a shit ton of money off that video game last year, and the poster boy for it was Sting. If anything, I'm disappointed in WWE 
for their use of Sting. You finally bring this guy in after how many years? You finally get him. Yeah, he's older, but so what? You put makeup on his face, he doesn't look that old. You finally get Sting to come in, and you just have him job to Triple H and then sit at home. That's their that's their grand idea for Sting. Let's bring Sting in, have Triple H beat him at WrestleMania, and then not do anything with him. They can't even find a match for him at SummerSlam, a four-hour show. They have no reason to be disappointed in anything that Sting has done. The guy has already made them a ton of money. Craig McNamee is a good one. Do you think Randy Orton is underappreciated or overrated? That is a good question. Randy Orton, I think, is one of those guys, the people who are listening to this right now, it'll be very interesting to see the comments on this, are very split. I think there's no in-between. You either really, really like Randy Orton, or you think he's boring as shit and hate his guts. I am more of the mind that, of the two, Randy Orton is underappreciated. And I'll tell you why. Randy Orton is really, really good. And uh, I am I am not the biggest fan of Randy Orton as like a promo guy or anything. He doesn't really excite me. But I, I feel like ever since Orton came back, he was kind of, he was gone for a while, was on vacation with his I guess now fiance, whatever. And he came back and his whole demeanor seemed to change. Like not that he doesn't give a shit. Maybe that's not the right way to put it. I mean, I'm sure he cares about you know what he does. But it's almost like he's a lot more chilled and laid back. He just goes out there and has fun. He makes these weird faces. Every time he goes for an RKO, he, he's like jiggling his body around and coming up with these weird poses. It's, it's, it's comical, but it's actually very entertaining. Which is all you can ask for, because Randy Orton traditionally, to me, was not really all that entertaining. You know, I, I certainly was one of those people who looked at Randy Orton and thought, hey, this guy's kind of kind of boring, right? He's like Robo Orton over here. I don't know if he's making an effort to change that, or if now his whole attitude changed, and he's just kind of out there having fun and not taking things too seriously, and not flipping out at the slightest thing that goes wrong. But it's actually kind of fun to watch Randy Orton now. And when you watch him in the ring as a wrestler, just doing the very basic things, we're not talking, he's not doing high spots, he's not doing flips. Randy Orton is one of the few guys in WWE, him and Cena, who you don't see doing those topes through the ropes. Every freaking person on that roster does them now. And I wish they would stop. Like, it was okay when you had a couple of people doing it, but now everybody does it. Randy Orton doesn't do stuff like that. Randy Orton does a superplex off the top rope, best superplex in the company. You know, it's not one of these half-assed suplexes off the top. You know, and he's putting his own body on the line when he does that. He goes all the way with it when he does it. He got his he's draping DDT. I mean, the stuff he does is over. Like, the people react to it. The way he does it, he always nails it. The RKO's out of nowhere. He could do it from almost any position. I mean, he's really, really good. His facial expressions. And I don't even think Randy Orton as a babyface is, is the best role for him. I think he's also one of these guys uh, who's who's like a natural heel. I don't even know... If he, if he likes being a babyface, but it looks like he's out there having fun. And when Randy Orton goes out there and he's on, and you give him 15, 20 minutes to go out there and, and have a great match with the right person, he's one of the best in the entire company. And he's one of the best at getting a reaction out of the people. 
Why, ask yourself this question. John Cena goes out there. I know it's the cool thing to do. That's part of it. But John Cena's been on the roster for, what, 12 years now? 13 years? John Cena goes out there. And for the most part, some cities may be a little kinder to him. But you get, let's go Cena. Cena sucks. Or he just gets showered in booze. People do not like him. And sometimes he'll do a good job of winning them over. But right, that's been the reaction to Cena for how many years now? Why is it then that Randy Orton, who's been on the roster for the same amount of time, he came up, if anything, I think he may have had his first TV match a couple of months before Cena, but they came up in 2002 together. He's been around forever. How many freaking times has he held the championship, right? 12 times? 13 times he's been the champion? Something like that? How many pay-per-view main events? I saw the ending to that Botchamania video this past week. It was unbelievable. I mean, we've talked about that before. How many times the two of them have had matches? It's out of control. But when you see it, when you see all the match graphics for every single television match these guys have ever had, it's unbelievable. And you ask yourself, well, why are people tuning out of Raw? They're tired of seeing the same thing over and over again. That was the biggest example of it. How many freaking John Cena-Randy Orton matches could one person take? So why does Cena get that reaction, but Randy Orton doesn't? a valid question Randy Orton like I said he's been around same amount of time shoved down people's throats maybe not as much as Cena but he's still been shoved down people's throats he's held 12 titles countless pay-per-view main events people don't react to him that way is it because he's been a heel and then turned babyface and John Cena's been a babyface the whole time maybe maybe that's why People don't react to Orton the way they do to Cena. People go crazy when Randy Orton comes out. In fact, Randy Orton's been a heel a couple of different times and ended up turning babyface because the crowd turned him babyface. That's what happened when he had Legacy. He didn't really turn babyface. The fans just started cheering for him. So they turned him into a babyface. And for a while, he was this badass babyface. There were people comparing Randy Orton at one point all those years ago, to Stone Cold Steve Austin, which is what people tend to do. Whenever you get, like, this badass hot baby face, automatically, oh, they're like the new Stone Cold, which they're not. But the fans seem to be, they seem to have a a, a much healthier relationship with Randy Orton than the crowd does with John Cena. So, I don't even know how I brought that up, I just thought of that. Uh, It's an interesting question to pose. But Randy Orton, I don't think, gets the kind of um, respect that maybe maybe he should get because he really is that good. You put him in the ring with John Cena, you ask who's the better wrestler. I mean, it's a subjective thing. I would pick Randy Orton over John Cena. I just think he's a much more polished performer. John Cena tends to be a little clumsy with stuff. I'm not personally offended when Randy Orton throws a punch <laughs> like I am when John Cena does the same thing. But Orton is is really good. I mean, one of the best in the entire company. And sometimes they'll phase him down like they did a few years ago. You know, he was losing to Mark Henry. He put Mark Henry over for the world title. I mean, there was a period, I think it was maybe after one of his wellness violations where maybe they just didn't want to take the chance on him. And he was on SmackDown and he he was he wasn't in main events. He was clearly being pushed a few pegs down the card. And that went on for a few years until finally he won money in the bank cashed in at SummerSlam, won the championship, turned heel, and he was the crown jewel of the authority. And then all of a sudden, he was back in main events, he headlined WrestleMania in that great match with Batista and Bryan. 
So Orton has been up and down, whereas I guess maybe the reason people tend to uh, crap on Cena more is because he's never <laughs> he's never been down, even as the U.S. champion. It's almost like he's he's still been positioned as this this headline guy on the show, and Orton at least has had periods where you've kind of gotten a break from him. But no matter what position they put Orton in, he goes out there, he delivers. I mean, he he just as a performer. He may be top two or three in that entire company. I mean, he's he's way up there. That's how good he is. And I think people maybe take him for granted because he's been around for so long. And there are people who are absolutely sick of Randy Orton. I'm not saying everybody loves Orton and hates Cena. But I do tend to think he's more underappreciated than he is overrated. I don't really see anything overrated about Orton. What, what would you say is overrated? I mean, I don't see anybody overrating his promo skills. I think people accept the fact he ain't the best promo in the company. As a as a worker in the ring, I mean, what's to overrate when you're one of the best? What what's to overrate? I don't see what's so overrated about the guy. So I would say he's more underappreciated. Canadian Dynamite, Cole Bloxham, from uh, Lloyd Minster, Alberta, Canada. Since SummerSlam is a week away, I decided to go back and watch some old SummerSlam shows to get into the festive mood. I stumbled across one that really left me scratching my head. The co-main event was The Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez in a rest-in-peace match, a concept that was never explained. This match was terrible, and I remember how awful their match was at WrestleMania 9 that same year, so the feud died a very slow, painful death. This is SummerSlam 93, by the way, that he's talking about. The main event was Lex Luger versus Yokozuna for the WWF Championship, which ended with Luger winning by countout, which makes absolutely no sense. After the match was over, there was a massive celebration in the ring with Luger, Macho Man, Tatanka. By the celebration alone, you would think Luger was the new champion. Why have such a huge celebration for somebody who did not win the title? Why did WWF book the title match in this fashion, and why did they put so much stock in an Undertaker-Giant-Gonzalez feud? Well, we'll start with the the Undertaker-Gonzalez thing. Giant-Gonzalez was a legit 7'7 guy. He was like 7'6", 7'7". He was a freak of nature. And that's what Vince McMahon and other promoters, Vince is not the only one, but Vince loves the big guys. And Gonzalez wasn't big in terms of being jacked up because in that period, 93, you're talking, uh, he was cracking down on that. There was a serious drug policy. He didn't have the big steroid bodies the way you used to. I mean, you had Luger, who years later, I think in his book, he admits, you know, he was still taking shit. He had a way to have other people take piss samples for him and stuff, use Visine. I mean, he talks about this. But for the most part, people shrunk. People they brought in were not nearly as big and jacked as they were just a few years earlier. Gonzalez wasn't big and jacked. He was just big and tall, and Vince loved that. You know, the whole analogy where you want to be walking through the airport and people look at you and go, oh, my God, who's that? He fit the bill. He was an attraction. He was like a freak show attraction. And they thought, well, it kind of makes sense to have the giant Gonzalez in there as the biggest challenge yet to The Undertaker. Well, they went out there and they stunk out the joint of WrestleMania. They had a shit match. And I think maybe their plan, maybe they had bigger plans for Gonzalez or, or bigger plans for that feud to go on longer. I think by the end they realized, okay, this isn't working or this was a bad idea. They wanted to do the blow-off. That was the blow-off. You know, Undertaker beat him very decisively, and I don't think he was around for much longer, Gonzalez, after that. I, I remember him being in a 
They had the Battle Royal on Raw for the Intercontinental title, the one that Razor Ramon ended up uh, winning, him and uh, Rick Martel. I'm pretty sure Giant Gonzalez was the first guy dumped out in that Battle Royal, and I don't remember him making very many appearances after that. So he was probably gone, like, right after that. And I think they realized they got what they could out of him. There was only so much the guy could do, he could, which wasn't much. So they took a chance, it didn't work, and he was gone. That was the story. As far as the rest in peace match, it was just a fancy way of calling it a no-DQ match. I think that match had to be won by pinfall only or submission. So uh, that, that was the deal there. As far as Luger and Yokozuna, I've talked about this on the podcast before. I've thought, I've thought this ever since I was however old I was at the time watching it as a kid. This doesn't make sense. Why is everybody so damn happy? Why are there balloons coming down from the ceiling? Why is Vince McMahon not telling us whether or not this guy is the champion or not, which he clearly isn't? What's going on here? Why are, why are the Steiner brothers holding this guy up on their shoulders and he's waving the American flag like a bozo? You, you won by countout, you schmuck. The whole point of this was Yokozuna was the evil foreigner, right? He was the evil Japanese guy who wasn't Japanese, uh, who had the championship held hostage. You had an event on the Intrepid, and Lex Luger slammed the guy, and he went on this bus tour for like a month and a half, traveling all over the country like a politician. (laughs) And you build to this big match at SummerSlam, which is one of the big pay-per-views of the year, right? Even then, SummerSlam was probably this is probably the second biggest show behind uh, WrestleMania. And Luger knocks him out, knocks him through the ropes, makes no attempt. I mean, he, in theory, he probably wouldn't have been able to, to lift him up back into the ring anyway in 10 seconds, but makes no attempt. He's actually counting along with the referee. If you remember, think back to that match. If I'm remembering correctly, he's counting along as the referee reaches the 10 count and he starts jumping up and down. To me, that was when his push died. That was it. And as far as why they did that, the story that I've always heard is that it had nothing to do with Luger doing anything wrong or being in the doghouse or anything like that. Vince McMahon decided, I guess relatively last minute, because why would you even do this match unless you were going to change the title? But he decided, you know what? This title change should be saved for WrestleMania. So we're going to hold off on pulling the trigger on the title change until the following March in Madison Square Garden. That was WrestleMania 10, which ended up not happening anyway because shit happens, right? That's a lot of time between SummerSlam and WrestleMania where plans could change. That was the the reason. He just decided, you know what? We should do this title change at WrestleMania. So we're going to do a countout finish. We're not going to beat Luger but we don't want to change the title. And the whole thing was a giant disaster because Luger was less over, at least with me. (laughs) I didn't like him after that. I thought he was an idiot. I can't root for this guy. And plus, what a a dissatisfying finish to the show. After all that buildup and the bus and everything else, it wasn't even... Forget the fact that he won by countout. To not even have him pretend to make the attempt to get the guy back in the ring and then to celebrate... Like, it's some big deal. It was so stupid. It was it was just so dumb. Now, I don't think it really changed things all that much. Even if Luger didn't act like a, like a dingbat that night, people were still more into Bret Hart. So when the Royal Rumble happened, remember they did the double finish. First they pretended that Luger won, and he got, you know, he got a nice reaction, but he got a lot of boos. And then they said, well, no, 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 Bret won. And then the place went nuts, and that was... 
as legend has it, that's when the decision was made. That's when Luger's fate was sealed, and they said, okay, we're going to put the title on Brett at WrestleMania. We're not going to put it on Luger. It had nothing to do with Luger. There's been so many urban legends about that whole period, about, oh, Luger was going to get the title, but he was at a bar in New York the night before getting drunk and bragging that he was going to win the championship. It had nothing to do with that. It had nothing to do with that. It had a hell of a lot more to do with that reaction to Brett at the Royal Rumble. So Luger never got his title run. If they would have put the title on him at SummerSlam, he would have had the championship. Would he have been a draw? Eh, probably not. I don't think Luger was ever that big of a draw in WWE. They tried to make him the next Hogan. He wasn't Hogan. Um, but yeah, that finish, to this day, it's it's something to see. I would go on the network and bring that up if you've never seen it before. Just to see how it all went down. And you'll you'll say the same thing. Like, what were they thinking? How could this possibly be the finish to this match? And could they do a, a better job of making Luger look like a complete fool? Tay from DC. Which do you think was a worse decision by WWE? Stone Cold's heel turn. The emasculation of CM Punk in 2011 followed by his loss to Triple H. Or the botched invasion angle? Well, the answer is the invasion. I mean, of the three, it's the invasion by far. Uh, it may be their, it may actually be their worst booking decision of all time. Not not just of the three. It may be number one. Just when you think of how much more money they could have made and how much more exciting it could have been for the fans, everything they could have done and didn't. And it's not like they had a, they were ever going to have the chance to do that again. That was always the dream scenario. What if you could do a super card, right? And have WWF guys against WCW guys. And now they had a chance to do that. And they really didn't do that. So the invasion by far. Now, I mean, Austin has taken credit since that time for the, for the heel turn. It was his idea. It didn't work. He wished he could take it back. He even said if he can go back in time, he would win the match... And then end up stunning Vince, you know. Hindsight being twenty twenty, but he takes he takes the blame for that. So I can only to me that takes some of the heat at least off WWE, not not all of it because they still greenlit the whole thing. But it takes some of the heat off them since Austin says it was his idea to turn heel. But what the invasion was compared to what it should have been and could have been, easily the worst of the three. And Tay's second question. Who is more popular in their run on top? Hulk Hogan or Stone Cold Steve Austin? Man, you guys are hitting me with some uh, pretty good questions this week. I thought a little bit about this, you know, when I when I saw the question pop up. Now, just so I can clarify here. Tay's question is who is more popular in their run on top? So I'm going to tweak that. I'm going to assume that this is what you mean and if not I'm going to assume it anyway, that you're saying at their peak. So at their peak of their babyface popularity in WWE, who was more popular, Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin? I'm going to go with Steve Austin. Uh, and I'm going to go with Steve Austin for, for a few different reasons. So when you say more popular, how do you how do you gauge that, right? How do you measure that? Is it just by crowd pops and reactions? Because if you go by that... Austin wins. You look at, not that Hogan didn't get great reactions, because he did, but the crowds were a lot more rabid. They were made up, I think, of a lot of 
a lot more teenagers. It's just the crowd makeup, I think, in WWE in 1999 was a hell of a lot different than the crowd makeup in 1987. So you got to take that into consideration, too. It would be like the crowd now. People say, why can't the crowds now be more like Attitude Era crowds? Because go take a look at an Attitude Era crowd and see who was in the crowd compared to now. There's a lot more kids that go to the shows now, families and you know, kids and their parents. Not nearly as many teenagers, 20-somethings. Those were the people who were going to the shows back then and you know putting their middle finger in the air and bringing the, the signs and everything else. So... You know, we have to just keep that in mind, but if we're talking crowd reactions at their peak, I go with Austin. If we go with who was a bigger draw, I guess in terms of ticket sales, I think Austin probably gets the nod as well. Uh, If you're talking in terms of merchandise, Austin gets the nod. I think even Vince McMahon has said like their biggest merchandise draw of all time was Steve Austin. That Austin 316 shirt to this day, I think, is is the highest selling t-shirt of any kind, anywhere, uh, at least in wrestling, but may, it may even go beyond wrestling. I still see people wearing that Austin 316 shirt. And how many years has it been since then? Almost 20 years. Um, by every measurable field that you could consider, if we're talking about these two guys at their peak, which I'm saying, for Hogan, it would be anywhere in that 85 to 87 range. I think that really was his peak. Um... 88, he really wasn't around for part of 88. Well, actually, that's not true. I mean, by... No, he he did miss part of 88, but his peak really, I think, was 85 to 87. Uh, 86 probably was his biggest year in WWE. And for Austin, you're talking 98, 99. 99, I think, being the biggest. So that's really what we're talking about here. Hogan was more... In some ways, I think Hogan was more important to the company in terms of this. When Austin became a big star, it was largely through the Austin-McMahon feud. So it's almost like Hogan-Piper. We talked about this when Piper passed away and how he doesn't get as much respect for his uh, role in the first WrestleMania and the success of WWF back then. It was all about Hogan, but there wouldn't be a babyface Hogan at that level without a heel Roddy Piper, right? So in terms of Austin, I don't know. I mean, I still think he would have been a a big draw and a success, but without Vince McMahon as the heel foil there for him, who knows, right? He still, you still had to rely on there being a Vince McMahon with the babyface Steve Austin. When Hogan was at his peak, Hogan was the guy. You know, Macho Man really didn't become a, a factor, a major factor in WWF until 87, 88. So if I'm thinking about this in terms of 85, 86... I mean, again, you could say the same thing with Piper. But take Piper aside for a second. After that, who did Hogan run through? He ran through all the big guys. He ran through John Studd. He ran through uh, King Kong Bundy. He ran through Andre. He had a program with Paul Orndorff after Orndorff turned on him. So those other guys were very important. But week to week on the road, they had the A show, the B show. I mean, everybody wanted to be on the A show with Hogan because they knew it was going to sell out and they were going to make a shitload of money. Hogan was the guy. There really wasn't another guy in WWF. With Austin, yes, you can say he came along in the Attitude Era or helped spawn the Attitude Era, but he also had The Rock and he had Triple H and he had The Undertaker and you had Mankind. In addition to Vince, you had all these different characters that helped make the Attitude Era what it was, which is true. 
But without Steve Austin, there is no Attitude Era. Right? As big of a star as The Rock became, does he become that big of a star or, or become that big of a star as quickly as he did if he doesn't have Steve Austin to play off of? Austin was far more important than any of those other guys in the company on top were at that time. Austin was the man. I mean, as somebody, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this were fans in the Attitude Era, maybe you only first became a fan in the Attitude Era, but you can relate. I don't think, I don't think somebody who's a new fan or who's really, really young and only started watching wrestling in like the Ruthless Aggression Era or the PG Era or whatever can really relate to how freaking insane it was when Steve Austin would come to the ring or when Steve Austin would be in a segment on TV driving out a truck or holding the show hostage or driving a monster truck or showing up in a hospital or whatever they had him doing. It was insane. I've never seen somebody so over before. Not Hogan, not not Cena, not anybody. His run was, was fairly short, but, you know, again, we're talking about these guys at their peak. I've never seen anything like Austin. Never. Haven't before, haven't since. And he was very, like I said, he was very important to that company. Even when he came back in 01 or, or 2000, he had the main event at WrestleMania in 01. He turned heel. Business took a nosedive. When he turned heel, one guy, <clears throat> we're not talking Rock, we're not talking Triple H, they could turn those guys left and right every single week if they wanted to. Austin turned heel, and business took a nosedive. Even then, he wasn't at his peak. Even then, that's how important he was to that company. They didn't want to see heel Steve Austin. They didn't want to see, as entertaining as he was, and I, I actually loved that version of Austin when he was doing the comedy stuff with Kurt Angle and Vince and all that. That's not what people wanted to see. It's not what people wanted to pay for. They didn't want to see that cowardly Steve Austin. They wanted the babyface ass-kicking Steve Austin that they knew from the Attitude Era. So he was very, very important to the company in that way. And by every measurable metric of each guy at their peak, I think Austin, I mean, if he doesn't win all of them, he wins more than Hogan does. Even this idea of being mainstream at their peak if you consider Hogan right around the time of the first WrestleMania, if, you know that to be his peak, you know he was uh, a known entity in the media. He was doing talk shows like uh, Joan Rivers and Arsenio Hall. He, I think, hosted Saturday Night Live one week, which no other wrestler has you know did, did since uh, since then until The Rock did it in 2000. Even Austin didn't host SNL. So yeah, Hogan was this known entity in the media in the mainstream, thanks to Mr. T, largely. But then at his peak, 86, 87, I don't know. I mean, how, how big of a main, like truly mainstream celebrity was he? Now look at Austin at his peak. Austin was on magazine covers. He was on the cover of TV Guide. He was on talk shows, just like Hogan was at his peak. So you can't say, well, Hogan was a much more uh, popular personality mainstream-wise at his peak. I'm not so sure that he was. I think it's pretty comparable, actually, between the two of them. And that doesn't just go for Austin. I mean, The Rock also had a TV Guide cover, Triple H. They did a whole series of TV Guide covers. Austin was just one of them. But Austin was uh, all over the place, even in the mainstream back in, in the late 90s. So even if you want to take that into consideration, if, if you give Hogan the nod, it's not by much. It's really not by much. So by all of those metrics at their peak, you put them side by side and compare them. Who is the most popular? The most popular was Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
Ace from Michigan, this may be the hardest question anybody has ever asked. You are forced to watch one of these for two hours straight on a loop. The entire Katie Vick storyline, John Cena PG comedy promos, or the Tim White suicide skits from WWE.com. What do you pick? This isn't hard at all. I watch the Tim White suicide skits. See, I, I would rather watch someone else fake kill themselves than watch either of the other two and then really want to off myself. The Tim White skits, you know, they were stupid. You would never see them now. I mean, were they tasteless? Absolutely. And they were dumb, but they were very entertaining. The Katie Vick storyline was not entertaining. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing to be a wrestling fan. It was cringeworthy, just like John Cena's comedy promos. The Tim White skits, by the way, also happened to be the only entertaining thing Josh Matthews has ever done in his entire career. Francois from Quebec. Is it Quebec or Quebec? I don't know the right way to pronounce that. In the 80s or 90s, there was a wrestling promotion called UWF that was run by a coked-up psycho named Herb Abrams. It won many dubious awards from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter before going under. What's the story behind it? Herb Abrams was a wrestling promoter. Uh, What else he may have been involved in, nobody seems to know. Maybe we don't want to know. He founded the UWF in 1990. This is not the same UWF that Bill Watts ran. This was the Universal Wrestling Federation, which it actually lasted for several years. This was not a fly-by-night thing that lasted six months or a year. It survived, I think, until like 1996, until he died, and then that was the end of it. Uh, They weren't very successful, but kind of like TNA, they still managed to somehow last for a number of years. Uh, It was notoriously awful. It's it's they're kind of they're mocked and made fun of all these years later. They put on a lot of bad shows with a lot of older guys. But you know, Abrams, the idea behind it was he wanted to compete with WWE. He wanted to compete with WCW. So he brought in a bunch of guys like Jimmy Valiant, Doctor Death, Paul Orndorff. He even got Captain Lou Albano, Andre the Giant, although I don't think Andre ever wrestled for him. The only thing I was able to find on YouTube, I was YouTubing some UWF stuff, which uh, if you do so, do so at your own risk. The only thing I was able to find with Andre, there was a Lou Albano interview segment with him. That may be the only thing Andre ever did for them. Uh, I think ESPN Classic was airing reruns of the show as late as a few years ago. I I vaguely remember this. But Abrams was, was a nut job. Uh, he actually named the jobber Davey Meltzer as a way, I guess as a way, to get back at Dave Meltzer for writing bad things about him in his newsletter. So he had this guy and called him Davey Meltzer, and he was like, you know, the resident job guy. Everybody would beat the shit out of him. Uh, but Abrams was into all sorts of stuff, bad stuff, right up until the day he died. If you go to his Wikipedia page, there actually is one on him. It's pretty bare bones. Uh, there isn't much on him except this. This is about the way that he died. Uh, he died of a heart attack while he was in police custody. But this is the best part. I want to read this to you. Okay, this is this is from his Wikipedia page on his death. While high on cocaine, Abrams was found naked and covered in a Vaseline-type substance, destroying furniture with a baseball bat while in the company of prostitutes. He had cocaine stuck all over his body when he died. What a way to go out. 
Tony Montana went out coked up in a hail of bullets. Herb Abrams went out coked up and naked chasing prostitutes with a baseball bat. Now that's old school wrestling right there. These days, all the guys do is just read comics and play video games. It's boring. Ivan from San Diego. What are your favorite championship belts of all time, and what are your least favorite looking championship belts of all time? Well, I'd say the, uh, the butterfly belt is probably way up there on my list of uh, ugly belts to look at. Uh, my favorite is and always will be the classic winged eagle WWF belt that they use from 88 to 98. Uh, I always said, you know, one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get me one of those. This is even before they were making replicas and before I knew that you could have the actual belt maker do the real thing for you. I always said, one day I'm going to have one of those. I have in my possession the Big Eagle one. You know, when I was still in college, they first started doing the uh, Figures, Inc. replicas, and I, I, the first moment I saved up enough money, which at the time was like 200 bucks or whatever it was, I bought the, uh, the Big Eagle. So I actually do have that belt here, and I had it re-leathered many years later because the, the original straps on the very first set of replicas they made were so stiff, and they were they was cracking. It was awful. It was awful. It was an eyesore. And I said, you know what? I spent 200 bucks on this thing all these years ago. Let me at least make this thing look nice. So I found some guy online, and I actually sent the belt to him, and he re-leathered it on a real leather strap, and it, it actually came out pretty nice. And it's nice. you know. It's I mean, what do you do with it? You just kind of look at it, right? That's all you really do, but I sure as hell don't take it with me to the events. I mean, you guys know that's my pet peeve. But that uh, that classic winged eagle, I still want it. Not gonna lie. Just and then I don't want the toy replica either. I'm I'm far beyond that. If I'm gonna do this, I've I've determined that if I'm going to do this, I want the real deal. I want that winged eagle belt, handmade, either by Reggie Parks, who's the original maker of the belt, or uh, Dave Milliken who is another famous uh, belt maker and, and does winged eagle replicas. I want the real deal with the old WWF logo plates, which apparently cost extra. Uh, I've seen Dave uh, Milliken's handiwork before. If you just Google his name and look up some of the belts he's done and stuff, he does amazing work. I mean, the stuff he's done just looks incredible. Uh, to have it done the way that I would want it to be done, it, it would probably cost about... 2500 bucks. I just can't justify spending that kind of money right now, but that is a that is a nerd goal of mine at some point in the future, hopefully to uh to get that championship belt. Not that I'm trying to give anybody any ideas, you know, with my uh my birthday coming up in October and all. I'm just saying. Guillermo from Colombia, which would you prefer? A kiss from Alexa Bliss? Or a lick of death from Katrina. Well, it depends. See, are, okay, so are we are we talking about a peck on the cheek? Are we talking about full blown tongue with Alexa? Like, what are we talking about here? It's a very important distinction to make. Guillermo doesn't specify here in his question. You know, if we're if we're gonna go all the way with this, then I gotta go with Alexa. If we're talking like a peck on the cheek or a peck on the lips, like your grandmother would give you, I'm gonna go with the lick of death. I, I'm convinced that there were guys who threw their matches with Mil Muertes just so that could get licked by Katrina. And I don't blame him either. I would probably do the exact same thing. This comes from Jerry. He is a new listener. 
He says, one particular segment I enjoy is the buy or sell segment at the end of your podcast. It's a great way to involve your audience and helps crystallize a complicated subject. So, buy or sell. The movie The Wrestler. Accurate account of the wrestling business or not. I, it's a weird thing because you have wrestlers who have come out who absolutely hated the movie and said that it's way too embellished, that's not how things really happen, like they're personally offended by it. It's a lot of like the older crowd, like old school guys. But there are a lot of guys who came out and said that's scarily accurate. So you're kind of split, I think, in the opinion from wrestlers on, on how accurate it is. So I'm not a wrestler, but as a wrestling fan, and, and looking at some of the old school wrestlers, like... Yeah, what's happened to them since, or they're they're still hanging on, still working shows, their bodies are broken down. Some of them still have the long hair. They can't let that go. No matter how awful they look, they just will not cut that long hair, Uh, Michael Hayes. But um, I'm going to say that it's probably more more accurate than not. I'm going to buy it as an accurate account. Again, I say this as a fan. I say this as somebody who saw the movie, and I'm a wrestling fan, but... Yeah, I can't say I'm like I'm one of those guys who lived through the era of the the 70s and the 80s and whatever. But I'm going to say that it's it's an accurate, pretty accurate look at how a lot of guys came up in the wrestling business. You know, they came up back, they were big stars, they were on top, the crowds are cheering for them and they don't know when to stop. And now they're in their 50s, some of them are in their 60s, they're still working. They're still taking bumps. They're all injured. Their bodies are all taped up. They got heart problems. They're one move away from a heart attack, which I guess is, I think that's how the movie ends. I mean, they, they kind of leave it up to your imagination if he died in the ring or not. I'm inclined to think he did. But, um, and it's sad too. It is sad. But you go to some of these conventions and you read stories and, I mean, this really happens. Is it the majority of guys from that era? I don't know if it's the majority, but... It's pretty goddamn accurate. And and not in a good way either. It's not like... Uh, I don't think WWE was uh, quick to heap praise on that movie. It's not the kind of movie they would want to mention or, or get behind. But I, I'm going to say that it's an accurate portrayal of how a lot of wrestlers are, unfortunately, these days. So, And I liked the movie. I thought the movie was great. As, as a film and Mickey Rourke, he was fantastic. So I'm, I'm going to buy on it as an accurate depiction of uh, wrestlers from that era. And we'll have one more buy-sell here, and then uh, we'll we'll get to a sad tweet. We actually have uh, a sad tweet this week for the first time in a few weeks. But Daniel from Bristol, UK. This is probably, like no joke, the toughest buy-or-sell that we've had yet here on the show or that I've had to do. Buy-or-sell. Shawn Michaels pre-back injury or post-back injury? That's a fucking tough question. <laughs> and I've, I've given this some thought, and I still... I'm still not 100% convinced. I'm still kind of waffling in my head back and forth, but I've, I've given this some thought. I'm still thinking about it now. I I am going to buy on Shawn Michaels' post-back injury. Of the two, I will buy on that. I will sell on Shawn Michaels' pre-back injury. But I, I'm conflicted because, you know, I came up as a fan at a time when Shawn was... You know, he was still with the Rockers. And then he did the heel turn... And I, I'm very fond of that period when Sean first turned heel. 1992, 1993. I mean, business for WWF was in the shitter. But I love that period. I can go back right now on the network and watch almost any pay-per-view from that period. 
I'm dying for them to put up like old episodes of Superstars and Wrestling Challenge. I know I could find them on YouTube, but you know that that's the next thing I'm hoping that they're going to add to the network. Although they'll go in sequential order, so it'll it'll be a while before we hit 1992, even if they put them on there. But I was a big fan back then, and I I was a big fan of Shawn Michaels as the chicken shit Intercontinental Champion who won all, or actually he didn't win, he lost most of his matches by count-out or DQ, which actually got very annoying after a while. But he had matches with, you know, the Bulldog, he had matches with Mr. Perfect, with Kona Crush, Tatanka, the matches with Razor Ramon. It's actually funny for me to think back to all those titles that Sean lost without actually losing them. I mean, he did he did lay down and lose to guys like Sid and, and Steve Austin, but there are a lot of titles that Sean never actually lost. <laughs> like his his second Intercontinental title, he got popped, I think, for a drug test failure, and he got stripped. His uh, third Intercontinental title, he got the shit kicked out of him by what they claimed was like nine or ten Marines. It was probably like one or two guys, and he pissed off the wrong person. But he got the shit kicked out of him and had to be uh, stripped of the title due to injury. His second world title, he lost his smile and forfeited the championship. Even those tag team titles. I, he won the tag belts with Austin. I don't recall them like losing them. Or was Sean even involved in the match where they lost the titles? I don't think he was. But there was that period, pre-back injury, where Sean had all these classic feuds that I, I was a big fan of as a young fan. And when you got into... And I, I maintain to this day that the Attitude Era... The Attitude Era dates back to, at the earliest, the very end of 1996. Because it just felt like you had this group of four or five guys, Brett, Sean, Undertaker, and Sid, who were just inherently pissed off at the world. Everybody was pissed at everybody. And the promos were getting a little edgier. Uh, you know, people. some people will point to the Brett Hart meltdown on Raw when he started cursing after the cage match with Sid. I mean, that might be the the singular event that it, it dates back to, but in my opinion, it dates back to the uh, the fall of 96. But anyway, Sean, the one thing about him, and you can notice this even as a fan just watching on TV, let alone if you were somebody who worked for the company at the time and has told stories since Sean about Sean not being the easiest person to get along with. I don't doubt for a second that Sean Michaels back then was a giant asshole. Because even on TV... There were flashes of him being a giant asshole. And him being very unprofessional and having a meltdown over the, the slightest of things. Like when he yelled at Vader in their match at SummerSlam, or uh, the the latter match with Razor at SummerSlam, when he threw a tantrum when the, the belt didn't come down. I mean, those are just small examples. But uh, he was a giant douchebag back then during that period. But also coincided with a period where he was also... You know, popping pills and doing God knows what else he was doing. He was on a really bad path. The funny thing about that, though, is I would probably... I would take a guess that that stuff probably was at its worst with him in 97. When I look back on 1997, that was probably one of his best years in the ring. When I look at the matches and the work, the promos... I mean, Shawn Michaels, when he wants, when he wanted to be, could be a great promo. I don't know that Shawn Michaels is going to be remembered as an all-time great promo guy. In fact, if you are to do a list of like the top ten or fifteen best promo guys in WWE history, I'm not, I'm not sure if he's in the top ten. Maybe he is. I'd have to give that some thought. But he may not even crack the top ten. 
But when he was when he was on, when he was a heel, right? When he first turned heel, like in '97, and the fans were turning on him, he had some incredible promos. That was his best promo year of his entire career. And in the ring, now mind you, this this is a guy who was doing a lot of bad stuff and probably wasn't completely of sound body and mind when he went out there to wrestle some of these matches. But he was, I mean, he was turning in match after match. The stuff with the Undertaker, you know, both the matches that they had in '97 were awesome. The Ground Zero match was a great match. The Hell in a Cell match was one of the, uh, the greatest matches in the history of that entire company. And still to this day, the best Hell in a Cell match they've ever had. Well, unless you look at Undertaker and Mankind, which was... It, w- it was great, but in a different way. As a match, I still say it's Shawn and Undertaker. So whatever this guy was on, whatever he was doing, however much of a giant asshole he was, he was the best performer in wrestling, bar none at that time, in, in this country. The best. 1997 heel asshole douchebag Shawn Michaels was the best. There was nobody else in that company, not even Brett, in the ring who could touch him. As a performer, in the ring, nobody. There was nobody who could touch him. Even in WCW, and I'm not talking about all the, all the cruiserweight guys, as a complete performer, as a main event performer in the ring, on the microphone, everything, the total package, In WCW or WWF at that time, there was nobody better than Shawn Michaels. So it's hard for me to pick post-back surgery Shawn, like buy on that and sell on the one before, because the one before was so great. But when you look at the second half of his career, okay, he came back in 2002. His career went from 2002 to 2010. That's when he retired. So a little bit less, if we look at the first half, it's more like 10 years. So it's like 10 years to 8 years. It's, It's almost comparable. Okay, it was... Fairly long. You look at the second half of his career, though. Look at what he did. His first match back, the match he had with Triple H at SummerSlam. Awesome match. Goes ahead, wins the world title in the in that first Elimination Chamber match. Goes to WrestleMania the following year, has the best match on the show, in my opinion, with Chris Jericho. You look at him in 04, right? WrestleMania main event. He's back in the main event of WrestleMania. Triple threat match. Awesome match. WrestleMania the year after that against Kurt Angle. Bobby Heenan called it the greatest match he had ever seen up to that point. I have a lot of respect for Bobby Heenan. That's pretty high praise coming from him. Him and Kurt had a bunch of great matches that year, none better than their WrestleMania match. That was an an amazing match. And then we get to WrestleMania 25. And anybody who listens to this podcast knows my favorite all-time WrestleMania match, and this is coming from a guy who is very, (laughs) I'm very hesitant to like take, current matches and put them over matches I've seen back in the day because I hold those matches in such great reverence. Although I, you will never convince me that the 1992 Royal Rumble is anything but the best one that they've ever had. But I will I will always put Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker, that first match of WrestleMania 25 of the two that they had there, that first one, best WrestleMania match of all time. I, I cannot use enough superlatives to, defi- to describe that match. It's awesome. It's a fantastic match. That match alone made me buy him post-back surgery over pre-back surgery. Going out on top, WrestleMania 26 in the main event. Can't think of a better way to go out. And you think of a lot of the other stuff in between. He had that little heel turn in the summer of 05, which I it was so it was too bad. It was too bad that he couldn't just extend that and didn't want to go full full on with the heel turn after that because he was so damn good at it. Uh, and I know it was easy heat being in Montreal, but one of the great moments, I think, of his second run was that night in Montreal on Raw where he came out and did that 
amazing heel promo at the beginning of the show and teased that Bret Hart was going to be there and they played his music and Bret didn't come out. That was classic Shawn Michaels heel work there. And that's one of the sad things, I guess, about the second run and maybe maybe it weakens it a little bit, but it's too bad he didn't have more time to work heel and, and work against some of the bigger baby faces. But the number of incredible matches that he had, the stories, the stuff with Chris Jericho in 2008, again, you could say for that alone, you you would buy on his post-back surgery run over his pre-back surgery run. Because that whole thing from start, start to finish was classic storytelling. Jericho raves about it in his book, and he has every right to because it was that good. They told the story for six straight months, and the matches they had, that ladder match at No Mercy, the angle where Jericho accidentally punched Sean's wife in the face for real... I mean, everything that went into that whole angle was just tremendous stuff. He did so many incredible things in that second run that as good as he was that first time around, I don't think it's, I don't think it's quite as strong as that second half. So uh, that's my long-winded explanation for why I would buy on Shawn Michaels' post-back surgery over pre-back surgery. But it's not an easy question to answer. It just goes to show you that the guy had a pre- a pretty damn good career, no matter what you think of him. If you like him or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can't not rank him as one of the best of all time. And this week's sad tweet, as I promised, comes from our good old friend, at Hulk Hogan, who posted a tweet earlier in the week, unsolicited, without any explanation, just at random, that said, aiming for WrestleMania 32. And I thought something was wrong. Maybe he was hacked because he didn't sign it with the usual HH at the end, so we know exactly who it was. People probably started to get on him for it, so then a couple of tweets later he posted another one that said, I will explain, I was aiming for 32, but I am training like there is still something big ahead in my future, only love for my maniacs, HH. (laughs) We got the HH. The Hulkster is in denial, brother. If there is a sadder tweet out there this week, I would love for you to show it to me. If you have suggestions for said tweet in the future, you can always uh, tweet at me, at Solomonster, let me know, and I may use it here on the show. Follow me on there during the week. Again, I'm going to be going to a bunch of different shows over the next week, and we'll be tweeting from there and posting photos and all that kind of stuff. So at Solomonster is the handle. Don't forget, Audible, you can get the Daniel Bryan book for free. Take advantage of it while you still can. AudibleTrial.com slash Solomonster every time you do so. When you sign up for a free 30-day trial of the service and then you can grab the book, you're helping out the podcast by doing so. Uh, so please get on that. And also don't forget we have our new Whistling Dixie shirt up in our Pro Wrestling Tees store, prowrestlingtees.com slash Solomonster sounds off. And uh, get ready for the Brooklyn Invasion. There's a lot of stuff coming up this week. Should be a lot of fun. We'll be back next weekend for episode 397 with our SummerSlam predictions. Until then, be well, stay safe. Enjoy the uh, events coming up this week, and we will see you right back here next weekend. Until then, take care, guys. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The Solomonster sounds off. Watch these promos on NXT. Watch Raw. Watch a Randy Orton promo or a Sheamus promo. They never, ever look at the camera. It's because that's what they teach them now. You are not allowed to look into the camera. I think it's just completely idiotic. Why are their eyes not on me? That's how interviews always work. They're talking to me. They're speaking to us. They're supposed to be speaking to the fans. Maybe that's part of the reason why these people can't make a connection with the audience. Because they don't fucking look at us. The monster sounds off.
since 2007. The Salamonster sounds off. Available at thesalamonster.com, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, iTunes, and more. Solo Monsters sound off. 